Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions of titles to choose from in a wide variety of literary genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your possession, whether it's an iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, you name it. And here's the deal. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get The Day of the Locust by Nathaniel West, or How About the Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler. Just about any book at Audible can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program a little bit. I get a few nickels. Uh, that is enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. <laughs> okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the programming option you have selected. This is possibly more than you bargained for. Thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. I am your host. I am the moderator. Is that what I am? What am I? Uh, I've got a great show for you today. A big show. A double feature. Two for the price of one. I thought I would try that out. Two uh, lovely and talented ladies. Artistic, literary, female powerhouses. And me. <laughs> Which uh, sounds sort of... Uh, it's like the, the uh, literary podcast equivalent of a menage a trois. And I mean that in a gentlemanly way in a chaste, 
bookish, business-like way. And uh, speaking of a menage a trois, and, and by the way, what is the plural of menage a trois? Like, is it menage a trois? Like, I, th- I think that might mean menage a 13 in French. Uh, but anyway, you know, I'm not trying to be gross here. I'm really not. I'm not trying to over-sexualize things. Uh, I have an honest question about this. I have an inquiry. So uh, I'm just going to shift gears uh, briefly into sexual terrain. And I will admit, somewhat sadly, (laughs) that I've never been involved in a threesome. It almost happened once, years ago. But then it sort of got weird uh, and it fizzled. And uh, I think it's likely that it will never happen to me now that I'm married and middle-aged or approaching middle-aged. Am I middle-aged? Anyway, uh, you know, I don't think either my wife or I uh, could deal with that from a personality standpoint. I think that we would be laughing or uh, we would feel bad (laughs) for our guest. But so here's the thing, okay? Uh, It seems to me that when you have three people in bed together, like one person is inevitably going to be left out. And that's sort of obvious. But more to the point, it seems like one person is going to be the least desirable person in that bed. Which is to say it's a Darwinian process. There's something brutal about it. And, you know, like the way that this stuff is usually presented in movies and uh, like pornography, popular culture, whatever it is, it's always like presented as this really great, hot, gymnastic, spectacular thing. And what I'm saying is that I think this is bullshit. My suspicion is that nine times out of ten, one person is sitting there feeling really bad about themselves. <laughs> oh, it's awful to think about. They're sitting there, this one person sitting there sort of like holding their knees, uh, awkwardly observing, excluded from the rapture on account of their inability to perform, or, or perhaps they're just not as good looking. Do you know what I mean? And uh, so I wonder, you know, has there ever been a story, just to kind of try to bend this back around into literary, uh, into the world of literary concerns, has there ever been a story written? Has there ever uh, been a, a scene in a novel, or uh, in a movie for that matter, where this has been portrayed accurately? And, you know, you can imagine it. You, you can imagine if there was a short story uh, called, like, The Third Wheel. <laughs> and it's a short story about a menage a trois written from the uh, point of view of the jilted party. The jilted third party, the awkward observer, the person who is left out. The third wheel. Like, I feel like I could write this story. <laughs> Like my entire life, I felt uh, like essentially, metaphorically, like the third wheel. It's hard for me to be in the moment. It's like I'm always evaluating the moment. I'm always aware of myself being aware of the moment. Or something like that. Like even now, as I'm saying all of this, uh, I'm, I'm like entertaining dual trains of thought. Like on the one hand, I'm talking and I'm saying all this. On the other hand, I'm thinking to myself... Is this rude? Is it dumb? Have I made some kind of mistake? An error in judgment? Is it somehow crass and inappropriate to mention 
uh, my two uh, guests and then to segue into an analysis of the psychosexual uh, nature of a menage a trois. You know what I mean. I guess I'm wondering if it's necessary. Is everything I just said completely unnecessary? Is anybody, you know, etc. So I'll let you ponder that as you continue on with your day. Perhaps uh, you can broach the subject with your colleagues at work or with the person sitting next to you on the subway. Or if you're, uh, let's say you're going out on a first date, it could be a nice icebreaker, like a nice way to open the conversation by saying something to the effect of, uh, have you ever been the third wheel in a menage a trois? And, uh, you know, you don't have to pronounce trois with that. You know how the, the French say it? You know what I hate? is I hate when somebody speaks a foreign language and then they always make a point of making the appropriate pronunciation to you in that foreign language as a way of signifying that they speak it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like when someone mentions the name of a wine or something on a menu and they're in America and all of a sudden they start like rolling their R's in a really pronounced way, that bugs the shit out of me. Anyway, uh, let's get going. Let's get serious. (laughs) I really am pleased to have both of uh, today's guests on the program. First up is Christine Sneed. Uh, where have you heard that name? Well, she has been in the media a good bit recently, uh, making some waves with her new book, generating some buzz. She was on the cover uh, of the New York Times Sunday Book Review exactly one week ago, a glowing review of her new novel called Little Known Facts, and uh, very exciting for her, and we're going to talk all about it. So... Let's do it. Little Known Facts is available now from Bloomsbury. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation with Christine Sneed. I'm in Evanston, Illinois. I'm about half a mile, maybe even less, from the northern border of Chicago, which is Howard Avenue. And outside, I'm three stories up near the squirrels in the treetop. Um, There's a guy down in the alley shoveling. Because okay. we had a bunch of snow the last couple of days. Okay, I'm glad to hear. Uh, that. I'm glad to hear that he's shoveling. Like I, I was expecting you when you said guy in the alley. I was like, oh my god. Yeah, this is getting dark. This is getting dark already. He's shooting up. He's... <laughs> yeah, no, we're we're like right across from elementary school in St. Francis Hospital. So the characters around here are usually like disgruntled parents and. Uh, like exhausted interns at the at the hospital, just smoking cigarettes. And then I'm I'm in my actually in my bedroom, which uh, is not very big, but the walls are sky blue, and there's a vase of like there was a rose in there for Valentine's Day, but it it faded. So there's just some baby's breath in this blue vase now. It's right on the dresser, adjacent to the bed, so it's very relaxed. Well, it's nice. Where that, I am. It's I, nice. I, that, it's nice that you got a rose for Valentine's Day. <laughs> I know it was nice. <laughs> Wait, so are you, ma- yeah. are you are you married, or did you get this from some sort of uh, romantic? Uh, you know, you know, I live with my partner Adam, who um, we're not married. We're I don't know if, who knows, maybe someday, but we're both in our forties, and neither of us has ever been married, so it's working out though. Wow. Okay. Well, that's cool. <laughs> and how do you and how do you like Chicago? See, my sister, my little sister, lives in Chicago, and. Um, I feel like it's, you know, and I'm from the Midwest, so I guess maybe I'm a little bit partial. I was, you know, I was born in Milwaukee. I know that part of the country pretty well, but 
I feel like I was born in Wisconsin too. I've uh, lived there for the first nine or ten years of my life. Me Green too. Bay. No shit. Yeah, I, Green. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm a huge. Uh, you know, I'm still a Packers fan. That's like I'm not even really. Are you? Well, yeah, I'm not even really that into sports. Like the way that I, when I was a kid, I was into it, and then I find that like the older I get, the harder it is for me to to like access that and get excited about sports. But, um, <laughs> Or, or excited about anything. That's, that's to your credit. Sorry, yeah, I think it is. Let's just be honest. I can't get excited about anything yeah. anymore. But um, but I'm still a Packers fan in like some sort of weird, like you know, childlike way. I remain a fan because I think I'm, yeah, the bond was formed young. My parents, my mom's from Wisconsin too. My dad's from Glendeer, which is just next door to Evanston, basically, and he's a Packers fan too. Yeah, not a Bears fan. No. <laughs> No, he doesn't like the Bears. No. He's like one of the rare people from the area who doesn't. Yeah, no, I like them. my little sister's marrying a Bears fan, which is making me. <laughs> it's a little bit. It's a little bit testy. I mean, you know, like during the season, <laughs> it gets a little bit. You know, we get a little mouthy with each other. <laughs> um, but I was going to say, like the Midwest, Chicago, uh, as far as big cities in America go, like the nicest big city. The people are nice in Chicago for as big as it is. And as tough as it is and as cold as it can be, like people are friendly in Chicago in ways that they, they maybe aren't in Los Angeles or New York or Philadelphia or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I think we tend to be more trusting and that's good and bad, but I don't ever feel like people are intentionally rude here except on the highway, which is the case everywhere. Yeah. So, but yeah, I really, I mean, I've never felt like an outsider here and um, it's, I mean, also, it's like such a sports town that I think people are really social. And there's, you know, obviously there's like hundreds of bars in every neighborhood. It seems for good or bad. But oh god, the bars, uh, are, the bars are so great in Chicago. They, yeah, there's some really nice ones. I don't really, I mean, I don't really hang out in them too much. And I, it's not saying I'm not saying that you do, but they, they, in Evanston where I live, Northwestern students, they really like Tommy Evans, which is uh, a really cool Irish pub. They have good food too, so. Well, it's just, you know, the thing about it is that you guys have the weather in the winter and you've got to go inside somewhere. Like in Los Angeles, there's just not bar culture the way that there is um, there. And so whenever I'm there, it's like, you know, it's it, in, let me put it to you this way. In Los Angeles, it's hard to find like that neighborhood pub somehow. And in Chicago, they're everywhere. So whenever I go yeah. there, it's just sort of nice. You know, you can just go and it's not like there's like a line or you've got to like make a plan. You just go in and it's easy. And there's like a dartboard and you know what I'm saying? Like you, you get to hang out at Venice beach instead. So, well, yeah, we have, and it's like, it's like, it's like 80, it's like 82 and sunny here today. It's gorgeous. Here today. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, actually out of my partner's family, his sister and brother who live in Northridge and they used to live in Woodland Hills and I think they used to live in LA too. So we go out there once or twice a year and I, I really like it. I, mean, I, do I too. It's probably the weather. Well, I don't know what it is, but I mean, like I, this is the thing is that LA gets bagged on so much. And I've been here for like 12 years now, and I really love it, like in a way that I've never loved anywhere that I've lived. And so because it's got this like, you know, baggage and all this like, ne you know, all this negative uh, stuff that's said about it, I start to wonder, like, if this is like the land of shallow, you know, like vapid, soulless people, <laughs> why do I feel like I fit right in? You know, <laughs> this is a bad, this is, this is ba saying bad things about it. I, you know, I think it's fun. Like the first time I went there, I was, I was, you know, I was sort of disenchanted. I'm like, you have to get on the highway, go to the goddamn grocery store. I did not, I didn't like that. I was like, this is insane. Um, but then um, I just got used to it. And 
and the sun the sun really won me over and also just the, the palm trees and everything too well it's a beautiful city that's the thing like the, like i think that san francisco is really beautiful and you've got the golden gate um there's you know take nothing away from san francisco but los angeles is a i think a, like a staggeringly beautiful place like the mountains and the ocean and the you know there's a lot yeah of, there's a lot of natural beauty here yeah, I, I mean, that was the thing. When I first was out there about 12 years ago, I visited Pasadena. I was like, oh, my God, there's a mountain like a mile away from the downtown almost. It yeah. was so strange. Yeah. I loved it, though. Well, that's it. I mean, it's like there's like snow-capped mountains, you know, outside of Los Angeles. People don't necessarily equate those two things, you know, or associate those two things. But mm-hmm. It's a good town, and it's, it's you know, apropos that we're talking about it because I, this is a question that I had for you. You know, as somebody who comes from the Midwest and lives in the Midwest, you've written – a Los Angeles novel. And I want yeah. you to talk about like, like how much research, like did you, did you pick up the vibe of the place through like really intensive reading research or did you spend an extended period out here? Or is it something that you just gathered through osmosis by way of your, you know, your, your biannual visits and you know, <laughs> entertainment culture? You know, it was probably that last thing more than anything else, because I've been to LA probably about a dozen times or so over the last 10 or 12 years. And, but even before then I was such a huge movie fan and, you know, seeing movies like the player and, um, I'm trying to think of some others that made a huge impact on me that are set in LA too, but just the idea as well of, of people who, you know, make these movies that affect everyone across the world. Like the year I, I studied in France, my junior year in college, 91 and 92. And where, in Strasbourg. Okay. Um, and I was shocked, like, the first time that I was, like, the first couple weeks when all the movie theaters, it seemed like every movie theater in Strasbourg, and then I saw it was the case in other cities that I traveled to in Europe, all had American films. I'm like, what's going on? But then I realized, I'm like, well, Hollywood is just, you know, it's it's like everyone everyone's culture is American culture, it's the, it's, it's even, the, whether they like it or not. It's the entertainment capital of the world, Christine. Yes, it is. I mean, it's clear. There's proof everywhere you look overseas, certainly. That's true. And, you know, like that's the you don't realize maybe if you're not traveling around how well Hollywood does to export its product. And it should be said, too, like people the world over really do authentically love this stuff. You know, like um, I've seen it, you know, when I've been overseas, you know, the people aren't in those theaters because somebody forced them to be there. Like people, love, right, people right. love Hollywood action movies and they love these actors and, you know, it's a good, I mean, I hate to use this kind of terminology, but it's a good product. You know, people like it. Yeah. Yeah. And then there are worse products. That's for sure. I mean, I, um, you know, I remember you, I think you were in London not long ago. I remember getting some of the newsletters that you would send out weekly and, no, that, I, is that right? You were I was or in, in, I somewhere to, in Europe. I went to Israel, actually. Did I say oh, that? Oh, Israel. Okay. Yeah. You know, I can't remember. I just remember, like, I'm, who knows what I'm remembering. But, you know, I, the year I lived in France, I went all over mostly Western Europe, but a little bit into Eastern Europe. And, like, all of our celebrities were on the, the covers of all the magazines, too, that were in the language of the country that I was in. Like, if I was in Germany or if I was in the Czech Republic, they were, here was, like, Julia Roberts, because this was the early 90s, except for Pretty Woman. And she was on all these magazine covers. And I mean, in a way, I liked it because I'm like, oh, I feel like, you know, I'm not homesick. And but at that time, like my parents also, like when I was a kid, we always went to the movies. I think it was something because my dad at the time was living in Glenview and working at the Board of Options Exchange. And my mom and I was in Green Bay. 
and he was coming up on the weekends. So we used to go to movies when he came into town for those few days. And I remember seeing Superman and Star Wars in the theater. I remember that very well. Like those, those nights we went to those movies and breaking away and even Caddyshack, they took me to that. I was giving a little talk before him. Like 32 people who are naked in this movie. <laughs> and so like movies just had a really big part of my, were a really big part of my childhood, just like books were. Cause both my parents are pretty ardent readers. And have been as long as I remember. So it just, you know, I, I finally like realized I want to write a, a book that has some, you know, has characters that are involved in Hollywood. It just seems like the topic that I should be writing about because it's been such an important part of my life. Okay. And it wasn't that hard. You know, I just, I, I just, and, and having been to, to Los Angeles and sort of picked up on the vibe, you know, there's so many people, you know, because you live there, there's just so many people who have these you know, they just want to be famous. And I, and I started thinking like, why, why, like, why do we want that? I mean, I'm not saying that I don't want to be either, but I just, well, you're on this, you're really... on this show. I mean, it's about to happen. <laughs> <for you. laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just, I just wanted to think about like, why are people so obsessed with this? Because it's clear to me, like if you look at Mel Gibson and Lindsay Lohan and you know, the crash and burn moments that they've had a lot with like, you could name a lot of celebrities, OJ Simpson and, Paris Hilton, and, you know, there's just a lot of them that it's like, well, clearly fame is not equal to happiness, nor is money. I mean, right. it's just, it just makes the stakes higher, and they're more awful when you start to fail. It, it feels worse. Okay, so let's, let's press pause for a second, because this brings up, I mean, especially the Oscars were last weekend. Um, I'm assuming you watched the Oscars. Did you watch that? Yeah, I did, yeah. Okay. I do. <laughs> so, and, yeah. You've, and you've written this book. Um, Let's let, let let's figure this out for people right now. Why do we want that? Why do people want to be famous? You know, I I think the thing is, well, clearly, I mean, I, the the character, the focal character, and Ivan says at one point that he wants, you know, we want to be loved. We want we want people to like think of us more than anyone. That they want to be with us more than any other person that they know, and they we don't want to be forgotten, and we don't. And we, and of course we want to be wealthy and we want to lord it over people who didn't, you know, respect us or underestimated us. And it's just like petty. Some of it's petty, certainly, but it's also, I mean, it's a, we want to leave a, we want to make a mark and a lot of people, not everyone, but I think you just want, I, I think you think that this is going to make your life so much better. And for some of us, it would, but not, I don't think it, it always would be what we want. Like, that's the thing that I've been experiencing since the New York Times review came out a few days ago for my book, which was such a great review. Um, and let's wait, let, let's, <laughs> let's stop for a second because your, your book, your book was on the cover of the Sunday New York Times book review. Yeah, I that's, know. that's pretty exciting. It was. And at the same time, I'm like, why am I so depressed? Like, what is wrong with me? I'm, I think it's just that I don't believe it. You know, that because I, I you know, I've, I've written like four or five other novels before this one was published, which weren't published. Those other books weren't. And I, I think the thing is, like, once you start getting what you've been striving for, you're sort of like, you're sort of like, what do you do? Like, what do I, what, what happens now? You do cocaine, Christine. This is when it happens. <laughs> yeah. This is your time to start trashing hotel rooms. Yeah. Like, I'll be calling up Stephen Tyler. <laughs> yes, he's the guy. He's the guy you want to call when it comes to yeah. that. Yeah, but yeah, I but mean, uh, it's so weird, it's so, strange. Okay, so let's talk about this because I think a lot of people listening will be interested to hear it. You said you've written, or you have, you have written, like you know, several novels, three or four of which did not get published, and then right. and then um, this one did. You had a previous collection of stories. Is that correct? 
Right. Uh-huh. Okay. So talk yeah. talk about the road to publication. Like, first of all, how did you get through those those uh, those books where that you know where you didn't find a publisher? Because I know how hard that can be. And then how did you finally get to where you are now, where you're on the cover of the New York Times Book Review? <laughs> you know, I I just I mean I think I figured it out. The year I studied abroad, the year I was in Strasbourg. That was when I started thinking seriously about becoming a writer, because before then, I was a French major at Georgetown, which is where I got my undergraduate degree. And I and I was like, oh, I really love writing, but I felt like I had to get permission to do it. And I don't. it was something I didn't really realize until maybe just a couple of years ago, but that was what I was thinking when I was in my teens and 20s, my early 20s. So the year I studied abroad, I was taken out of my normal, comfortable, you know, associations and environment. And I just realized, I'm like, I can write. Like, why the hell not? You know, if I want to write a fucking poem, I can write a poem. Well, you know so, what? Though, France does that to terrible. people. they were terrible. France does that Pardon? to people. Everyone who goes to France for a semester abroad <laughs> writes at least one, like, poem. Come on. You know? <laughs> yeah, I wrote, like, I wrote a lot. And I started, I mean, not like a huge number, but, you know, quite a few. And I also started keeping a journal. So I tried to keep one before then, but I just wasn't very consistent about it. So that year I was in France. I'm like, I should be writing some of this down. Like, what, yeah, I want to remember what it's like. And, and, and I started writing a little bit of nonfiction and I'm like, this is hard. Like what I'm saying is just really banal. And I, I took my senior year when I went back to Washington, DC, I took a a poetry workshop and that was when things really started to crystallize. After I graduated, I worked for two years as, as a secretary in Chicago at a company in the loop. And then I went and got an MFA at Indiana and I spent the second half of my childhood in Indiana, so I know Indiana too. Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah I was in Bloomington. And Good, Good so where did you live? I lived. Like, Were you in Bloomington also? No, I was in suburban Indianapolis, like just the suburbs. Okay, uh, Adam's actually from there. My partner's from the, the north side of Indianapolis. Yeah, that's where I grew up. Where? What's what's his it's last nice. name? It's nice. Who is he? What, do I, I know? Him? You might. His name's Adam Tinkham. He went to North Central. I went to Carmel High School. We were like rivals. I don't know. I don't know if I know him. <laughs> Maybe I would recognize him. <laughs> You might, I think you're probably younger than us. Um, just you a look bit. younger. You look younger in your picture. Yeah. Well, that's like but, I only put pictures up that are like ten years old. <laughs> I'm not going to show people what I actually look like, Christine. <laughs> well, you know, good thing these aren't Skype interviews, then, right? <laughs> no, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I just I was I I just thought like other people are writing, so I, why the hell can't I? And and. And then when I left uh, Bloomington, I got a job working in the city in Chicago, and it was another secretarial-type job. And I was writing, and I started publishing stories. Even though I was a poetry MFA at Indiana, I knew that I wanted to write fiction. I just It was hard. Like I, I think the thing that I learned as a poet, as a poetry student, was that I've talked about this before um, in other interviews. And so if anyone's heard another one, I apologize for the repetition. But there's this compression in poetry that I think it's helpful for fiction writers to learn. And it made me much more aware of each sentence that I wrote in prose uh, because I had to think so intensively about, you know, diction and when I was writing poetry. Um, And I just started sending stories out in the late 90s. And, you know, acceptances took a long time to come. I think I usually had like two stories uh, a year that were accepted, despite the fact that I was sending out you know, maybe like 20 stories to 10 places or more a year. I mean, I, I really was sending out like two or three or 400 
submissions every year and getting just a couple of acceptances. But that's pretty much what happens for most people. I mean, I think one reason why people give up who have talent is just because you have to be really, you have to just divorce yourself from the rejection. And it's not easy to do. I mean, of course, you're going to get angry and feel underappreciated and also feel envious of other people, you know, who seem to be doing a lot better. But I can speak from experience that those people who seem to be doing better, they're still like obsessed with other people's accomplishments. I mean, it's it's sad to say, but it's true. I think if if a writer's being honest, no matter how much success he or she achieves, he still or she is still looking over his shoulder at other people and who won that prize and how much of an advance did they get? I mean, that, I hope I don't sound like a jerk for saying that, but I just think it's important for people to know that you, even when you get to a point where you think, you know, things are going to get easier, I don't know if they do. I think it's just a human character to be like constantly worrying about, and that's the same thing with famous people, like these actors that I wrote about in, in Little Known Facts. Um, well, I was just going to say that, the, the, like, I was reading uh, after the Oscars, I was reading like, you know, Nikki Fink's blog on Deadline.com. I don't know that. No, I'll have to look it up. She's like this really snarky Hollywood <laughs> blogger who like knows everything about the But You would eat it up. I mean, it's like she's got all these contacts in the business. People gossip to her, and then she publishes it on her blog, essentially. But she's also sort of reviled because she can out people and you know reveal biz- details of business deals but she like blogged she blogged the oscars in like really snarky like brutal fashion but she, there was like a paragraph or two about how like envy is what runs hollywood and it's true. people yeah, I, think it is. I mean it's like you know i don't know it seemed like it struck a very true note to me and i think about that crowd and all those egos in that room and it's on television it's like it's riveting theater even if it's absurd even if I don't, yeah. really, even if it's obnoxious to give out golden statues for art like that, but yet it's irresistible, you know, it's irresistible theater. Right. That's the thing I said last night or the night before, I guess it was Sunday night. I said, you know, it's absurd. And I, I think I said the same thing last year when I was talking with friends about it. Why is it that these rich, beautiful actors who are like famous all over the world need to give each other more awards? This is absurd. Like you said, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, it's, it's a- really just a part of the pageantry. It's like another way to stroke their egos, as you said. I mean, that's really what it is. Well, and it's also a great way to market movies. I mean, it's good, you know, people, yeah. like, bill- yeah. it, like a billion something people watch it. So it's a celebration of movies, which I think like that's probably the best it can be. Do you know what I'm saying? That is what the Oscars are at their best. It's like a celebration of the art form. And that's nice. And it's nice that so many people are interested. Like if that many people were interested in watching authors get awards, you know, I think we'd all be very happy. <laughs> Most <laughs> of us aren't that good looking. I was so. going to say, we need to, we need to get some hotter <laughs> authors up there. We need to figure, there, there needs to be like a new, like genetic thing where we just send the, the beautiful ones up and pretend that they can write, you know, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like the Spice Girls for authors. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just anything. And they can yeah. be, they can be holding books by like really good authors who are like hunchbacks and, you know, <laughs> sitting in their basements. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the thing that people don't want to acknowledge. And that's actually a big part of what I was underlying a lot of what I was writing in Little Known Facts, too, with the, the jealousy that every person at some point, usually, unless you're like stoned constantly, is going to feel envy or jealousy. And it's, you know, I think the thing is like one thing when I was sending out all this work and getting just a couple of acceptances a year, and that went on for like 10 years. I mean, I was writing, I started writing fiction seriously in the mid-90s. And then I published my first story, I think it was in 1999. And then I had my first book published in 2010. 
So, I mean, that's a long gestation period. I'd written a lot that I've written so much that has not gotten published aside. I mean, aside from in journals, I've published probably about 50 or 55 short stories now. And then I have this book of 10 stories, you know, so it's like, it's a very small sample of the work that I've had in print. And then a number of stories that I've not sent out or have sent out and have never been accepted. And then along with that, also the the novel manuscripts. And that's something I always tell my students because I teach at DePaul and I teach in the, I teach part-time for my first university and, and I taught for the Pacific University of residency program this past summer. And I hope to be back there in June. But, you know, I think my students sometimes feel that everything they write needs to be publishable or published. And it's just not going to be. And, and that's, you know, you just have to accept that at the outset if you're going to make a life as a writer. Yeah, you have to, yep. yeah. I mean, you have to make peace with rejection. That's for sure. And um, I guess yeah. a, a question that comes to mind then is, did you ever get, did things ever get really dark for you where you were like, oh <laughs> shit, this isn't going to happen. And you know. yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that actually the nice coincidence is that I was having those thoughts, which I never really had many of because I was just convinced that I was doing the thing that I needed to be doing, despite the fact I wasn't making any money on it. And I was grading hundreds of student papers every quarter. I mean, just mind boggling numbers of student papers. I just really believe that I'm doing the right thing. And a lot of that was based on the fact that I love writing. I mean, you have to love it because otherwise there are a lot of other things you can be doing with your time that you probably have more fun doing. Like countless things you could be doing with your time that you'd enjoy more. I did, like, it was probably a few weeks before I found out that I had a story selected for Best American Short Stories. And that was in February 2008. I was thinking, like, is it? Am I just going to publish a couple of stories every year? Am I just going to have to resign myself to this? I had worked with an agent already for a few years, and she'd gone out with a couple of my manuscripts, which she didn't end up placing. So, I, I mean, I had had, you know, some acknowledgement from New York. It's just nothing sold. And so I thought, like, it's just it's not going to happen. And I kind of just ignored that voice. I mean, it, it, luckily, it didn't freeze me up. I was working on fiction and trying to just, you know, not given the despair. And then that phone call came when I had that piece taken for Best American. But, you know, I didn't place that many stories after that right away. It took that next year, I probably only placed a couple pieces. I mean, it's, it's despite the fact you get these great things that happen that every short story writer or, you know, somebody writes fiction, it's like you want to be in Best American and Oh Henry. It doesn't mean that you're going to suddenly have like editors calling you and asking you for your next story. And, and so that, I mean, that, I just kind of had to you know, carpet bombing <laughs> journals, like sending, you know, most people, like my students will say, oh, you know, it says no simultaneous submissions. And I say, you know, let's be frank. Like most editors will even tell you if you meet them face to face, but they know how long it takes to get a story accepted. So they usually are pretty amenable to the fact that if you do happen to get a piece accepted that they're considering, if you tell them right away, they're not going to hate you. Um, and it's just part of the business. Like if, if you're going to send your story to one place at a time, you're going to get like one piece taken every five years. Yeah. Cause you, it often takes so long to get something taken, especially a story. Yeah, no, you can't. I think that's absurd. And you know, they have to realize, especially since you're not going to probably get paid anything. And if you are going to get paid, it's going to be like <laughs> yeah. $50. So yeah. You know, yeah. Beggars can't be choosers. Yeah. I think they have to, you, you have to be, you have to be willing to sort of break that rule. <laughs> right. And it's okay. It's sort of like an, an unspoken um, practice that you know most people will send to more than one place, even if it says you know simultaneous submissions. 
Okay, so because, uh, yeah. So let's get to like little known facts then. Um, it's born when you start thinking about Hollywood. You start realizing this is what you want to write about. Did the actual writing of it, did it happen quickly? Or was it like painstaking, grueling? Uh, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, it wasn't really at all. The first chapter was, like, I actually wrote the first chapter in the fall of 2010. And I was teaching for, I think I was teaching, like, four writing classes. And um, I was just really tired more than usual in the evening. So it took me, normally I can write a story within a few weeks. Um and, but I don't, you know, I don't watch TV and I don't have kids and I don't even have any pets, despite the fact that I'd like to have one. It's just, I don't have a lot of space, so I don't have any dogs or cats. And it's just all about you. So, yeah, I mean, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> that is, you know, that's, it's all about me and it's all about writing. Like, even, you know, if you, I also, like, some people who write are like, I need, like, five hours and they all have to be consecutive and actually burning a jasmine candle and drinking lemon tea. And, you know, I'm just like, I'm just going to sit down and write for half an hour. If that's all I've got today, that's what I'm going to do. I don't write every single day. I mean, I, I do try to write at least three or four or five days a week, at least for half an hour to an hour. Sometimes longer, it just depends. But I wrote the first chapter of Relations in in the fall of 2010, and then I just thinking of it only as a story. And the the but the thing was, I had the idea of the father and son and the rivalry. That was immediately what I was thinking um, when I started writing, and even before that, because I had already written a couple of stories about actors or screenwriters, and the envy was what really motivated me. The idea of the son who is, you know, a decent guy basically, and the father who's a, be- a decent guy too, more or less. What would it be like to be this guy's son if you, you know, if you're not as talented or you don't really, you don't want to be an actor? Um, and of course I was thinking of like Paul Newman and Harrison Ford and Paul Newman actually lost a son to uh, yeah. unfortunately in the 70s, you know, to drug addiction. And yeah. and you know, I, you just, there are, there, like, also Michael Douglas, like, his son is in prison in New York for, like, being a meth dealer or something like that. I mean, it, there's so many stories about, and actually my friend David Elliott, who read the, the book in draft, um, gave me some help. He works in Hollywood as a, he used to be an actor, but he's, he does a lot of on-set construction. He's, I think he's a construction foreman, and he worked on Hunger Games, too, and built, helped build all those sets. But he, he read it, and he said that there's, like, a, a sort of a mean joke on set where they say, you know, like you've been bad in one life, you come back as a movie star's child in the next life. Yeah. yeah it's gotta be so <laughs> tough. It's gotta be so tough. I mean, you know, like if you have this kind of larger than life, parent, right. there's no escaping that shadow. You have the last name. You probably look like the guy uh, or the mm-hmm. girl, you know what I'm saying? Or the mm-hmm. male or female. It's yeah. Just, it's gotta be like, I was just, you know what I was thinking? Because of course, like I'm always entertaining multiple like trains of thought at once. But like, as you were saying this, <laughs> And I was thinking, I was thinking for some reason about Brad Pitt and I was thinking to myself, you've got these children, you've got this, he's got a brood. He's got like what, six kids. I know he and Angelina. Yeah. They have like six or seven kids. So as you were talking about that, cause I think like, you know, there are a lot of, like there are a lot of Hollywood megastars who actually, you know, I think are decent people and good uh, Mm -hmm. parents Mm -hmm. or the, you know, they, they try really hard and love their families or whatever, but like, God, if that were me, like, I would, I think I would have to, like, talk to someone. Like, how do I raise these kids and not mess them up? Because you don't, right, you don't, right. even, you don't even have to be, like, a domineering, crazy famous person. If you're just, like, that famous and that wealthy, 
Like it's a da- right. it's dangerous ground. Like what do you tell your kids? You know, or do you just like love them unconditionally, or do you like pull like a, a Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn and like raise them in Aspen and st- you know what I'm saying? Like what the hell do you do? Right. I don't know. And Catherine Zeta Jones and Michael Douglas have been raising their kids in Bermuda or something like that. I why, heard. Why do we know this? We know. I knew that too. <laughs> And like, oh yeah, and like their kids just started private school, and like I know more about their family than I do about like friends of mine's families. You know, <laughs> know it's true. Well, you know, they have privacy, and movie stars don't have privacy, basically, in the ways that we that we anticipate that we'll have it. Um, but what was I going to say? Well, you know, the thing is, I think like Goldie Hawn and her daughter Kate Hudson. I mean, clearly Kate Hudson overcame if she felt like any sort of insecurity or anything. She's a really good actress and she's been very successful. So she's one example of someone who managed to step out of her parents' shadow and succeed on her own. But, you know, like Tom Hanks has a son. I don't he he's been in some movies, but I haven't really seen him in anything lately and it has to be hard. Like his father's won Oscars and, you know, was like the most popular man in Hollywood for a while and uh, it's just, I, I mean, that pressure just becomes, I think, pretty formidable. And and so I wrote that story, and then I set it aside, but about four or five months later, actually it was in mid-March in 2010, 2011, I was like, God, I really, you know, I'm still thinking about these characters, the father and the son and the ex-wife Lucy, and then his Will's sister Anna, who's a med student. I, I just was like, I really want to write more about them. And so I just started plotting out other chapters. And Danielle, the girlfriend, Will's girlfriend, is the second chapter. And it just, you know, I just started thinking about them. And then I wrote the next, of the 11 chapters, I wrote that first one, you know, several months before I wrote the last 10. And the last 10 I wrote in about four months, maybe just a little over. Um, Because I just wanted to know what would happen. I mean, it sounds sort of silly, but I I just wanted to see what would happen. I'd already sort of put down the main plot points, uh, who would end up with whom, and, you know, would sort of, major events would happen in in the book, but the deep, the little details and some of the subplots I hadn't yet figured out. So that was, was, was exciting. I just wanted to keep, I just wanted to keep going because I, I wanted it to end and I wanted to see what would happen. And so, and who, okay. So this, this is a natural question to ask. If your book becomes a movie, who are you envisioning playing these people? Like who are, who are, is there, <laughs> was there a model for, is it Ren? Am I, it's right. Ren Ivan. Yeah. Ren Ivan's. Yeah. Okay. I, you know, it's funny because, I, I'm like, well, George Clooney would be a great guy to play him, you know, and he, he's about that age. And <laughs> have, have you imagined? <laughs> maybe, have you imagined yourself like on the set of the movie adaptation of your book, like hanging with George? <laughs> you have, I know you have. Yeah, well, you know, it'd be weird. I think, I, I don't know. Like, I'm worried. I mean, I really would love it to be made into a film, provided it were made into a film that was pretty faithful to the book. Um, like the player that. That book was adapted, I think, from a, or that movie was adapted from a book, and that was such a masterpiece. But of course, Robert Altman also adapted a bunch of Raymond Carver stories and made the movie Shortcut. But I think he collaborated with Raymond Carver, and he did a great job with that movie too. So I mean, Robert Altman's dead, unless he can be resurrected. You know, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But um, you know, I mean, it'd be great, like if 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 it were made. You know, uh, someone. I wonder who would be a good director for it. Well, I mean, I well, think, Robert Redford would be a good director, but he has a son who might feel like Will. You know, he, I don't know. It might cut too close to the bone. I wonder that. It's so hard. Yeah, it's so hard. It's, it's such a strange world. And, 
you know, like another thing, like the, the the parallel side of it, because we've been talking a lot about fame and its repercussions, but like there's also the issue of money, which, yeah. I, you know, especially because I live here and I live in Hollywood uh, and I see, I mean, just everywhere in Los Angeles, you go downtown and you see Skid Row or you're just in the, yeah. flat, you're in the flats as opposed to the hills or you're on the east side as opposed to being on the west side. Like there's just obviously yeah. there's great disparity happening all over the place but it's you know you see it in high relief here and Mm -hmm. you know i i'm just what was i god what was it today oh you know this is what i was reading about today and it really pisses me off like i get like like not violently but like viscerally viscerally angry yeah i always Uh i always misuse the misuse the word viscerally but i just felt like a surge internally of like rage and I was reading about uh, the new Yahoo, the the company Yahoo, the the new uh, uh-huh. the new po- yeah. the new policy that they've just instituted where nobody can work remotely. And I think I was reading Maureen Dowd. Uh-huh. I was reading Maureen Dowd in the New York Times. And uh-huh. for, for people who are listening who don't have um, you know working knowledge of this, Yahoo has a female CEO who's in her late thirties. She's my age, uh, uh-huh. and she's got like she's a beautiful woman. She looks like a model. I mean, just beautiful blonde mm-hmm. woman. Um, and she's obviously very successful. She's got a five-year contract, I believe, for like $120 million. Oh, my God. Like that's that's her, crazy. Yeah, so that's like just her salary. I'm sure there's like bonus and stock options. And yeah. She's yeah, like yeah. Absurdly, she used to work at Google. She's absurdly, fabulously beautiful and wealthy. And she just had her, her first child at the age of 37. And uh, now, as a, like, you know, a big move in the company, she's telling everybody who works from home that they ha- either have to like quit their job and leave the company, or they have to come into the office forty hours a week and work in house. Oh my god! And so Ugh. this is the part that gets me pissed off. Is like I'm thinking especially about like uh, families because I have a two year old and I know what that's like. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. about working mothers. This this chick, Marissa Mayer, is her name. She uh, out of her own pocket, in her defense, I believe it's out of her own pocket. She built like an, a full like nursery next to her executive suite at Yahoo headquarters or wherever her office is. So she, she can afford to do that. Yeah. yeah. So she's got her kid like in the little nursery next to her office and she's got like a four bedroom penthouse at like the four seasons in San Francisco too. I mean, she's, she's loaded and now she's like screwing all these people. Oh my God. Uh, over who, you know, who, cause I know how, you know, my wife works from home and it makes being a parent so much easier. And it's just like, Here's, yeah. here's the issue to tie it back into Hollywood is that, and to tie it back into life in general is that I'm consistently depressed and amazed by and fascinated by the, the insulating nature of money, the way that it insulates people from one another. And then also the, mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. that it makes people almost like amnesia. They have amnesia. Like, cause most of these yeah. people, I, I don't know what Marissa Mayer's background is, but I, I'm assuming she didn't start off super wealthy, like the way that she is now. Maybe she did, but you know, I, for people, especially who didn't start off that way and then become super wealthy, I see it happen. Mm-hmm. They lose touch mm-hmm. with, um, what it was like to not have that kind of money. And then you see people in Hollywood who are just fabulously well to do, whether they, you know, came, came by the money by virtue of their own successes or they inherited it or whatever the case may be. But it's mm-hmm. just like, uh, it, it feels like really good, decent, well-meaning people, even them, like even they uh, mm-hmm. are, are, um, can fall prey to this where suddenly they have money and it's like, they just lose touch. And that yeah. makes me, yeah. that makes me crazy. It's like, holy shit, that's dangerous. You don't want that to happen. 
But look at Mitt Romney. I mean, I'm sure you've talked about it ad nauseum with friends, like 47%. You guys are like slouches. You're not working. You're just leeching off the government. It's just insane because clearly the 47% that he's talking about, a lot of them are working like two or three jobs. They're getting like eight bucks an hour. College, meanwhile, tuition is unbelievable, even for state university. Yeah, I mean, I, that was something, I mean, not, I'm sorry to bring up my book again, but that was something I was thinking about when I was creating this character, Ron Imans. I haven't given a lot of his money away every year because I think, you know, there are movie stars like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie who do things all over the world, and especially Africa, and Oprah's done it too. And I mean, if you make that much money, you really need to give a lot of money away. That's what I think. Like that, and that's one of the things, like, I haven't made a ton of money from my writing at all, but having had a, a you know, a New York Press give me an actual advance for this book, you know, I was like, I just want to buy all my friends presents, you know? And I did. Like, I just, I just wanted to give everyone gift cards and do stuff. It wasn't like I was giving them, like, $120 or $100, you know, $200 gift cards. But, you know, I'd be like, here's a $20 Starbucks card or here's a $20 um, Amazon card or something like that. It's just fun. Like, I think if you have money, you should share it. Well, and you know, that, I, it's that, and it's like, it's like, and I think that's obviously like really great and noble and uh, appropriate, but it's also, I think, uh, especially if you've ever struggled, like a lot of people I think are quietly struggling out there. Uh, yeah. You know, especially, yeah, especially definitely. writers, especially writers, it's isolating and it's difficult and it's embarrassing and, you know, you're working really hard and yet you're not getting ahead and like, you're worried, you know, there's a lot of that. Right. I know it firsthand, especially, you know, now that I'm a parent, it's especially like intense in me. And, uh, I think that it makes me, uh, hypersensitive to, or what's the word that I'm looking for? Like, okay. So it's like, let's, let's look at like my situation, which compared to a lot of people, uh, is quite good. <laughs> you know, it's all relative. Yeah. It's all relative. So like you think about somebody in Africa who's literally like got no food and then you think about right. like a, a quote unquote struggling writer who lives in like a warm apartment and gets three square meters right. a day, you know, right. so, so right. It's, it's all relative. But I think about sometimes and it makes me like anxious, you know, and like a little sweaty, <laughs> but yeah. I think about like, like there are so many people in the world who are just completely fucked. Like there are, there <laughs> There, there are emergencies, like they, people are in emergency states of mm-hmm. being, mm-hmm. and yet you have these people who are like, I think I'll just get another house. I think I'll get a new, you think I need, Car. The, I think I need, I the need new, a new Porsche. I need, I need the new Mercedes SUV because I just, I'm tired of the old one. Like it's obscene. <laughs> it's obscene to think of it that way. It's like, what are we doing? Like, I think I wish people, including myself, I don't even know if it's possible because it seems like you would have to somehow like really overcome something that currently is fundamental about human nature. But it's like we need to turn outward and we need to think of each other instead of right. lavishing ourselves with like second homes and gifts and, you know, four star, five star hotel vacations and like all this stuff. It's like, wait a minute, man. Like the world is a mess. Like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think about that a lot. Like, I'm giving my little. Starbucks cards, my friends. I'm like, this is silly. But in, at the same time, I'm like, I know, you know, the, the scale that we, you know, that the, the wealthy people, like this woman who's the head of, of Yahoo, the scale suddenly it changes. Like when you start making money, you start wanting to hold on to it. And you, and that's one thing I'm really finding. So it's not like I have that much money. I mean, my, also my condo that I bought has lost like 50% of its value, which is a small one bedroom in Evanston. So I'm like, I'm here for a long time, you know? Which, but I'm also like, thank God I have it. 
because a lot of people have had their homes foreclosed. And and that is something like watching the Oscars uh, two nights ago that I think about. And having been out in L.A. too, that 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 conspicuous consumption and you know, I just don't I don't need a lot of stuff. And I and that's something that I again wanted to, my characters, despite the fact that they have all this these material comforts, I wanted them to know that they were privileged and be aware of the fact that. You know, there are a lot of other people, especially like Ren making his film in New Orleans and starting a foundation there. That I don't. I mean, unfortunately, I just see the trend getting more and more entrenched. Like with the way our government is letting corporations make laws and influence policy. And I guess I'm going way off on these tangents, but it's just, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I feel like people need to remember that one of the reasons why we're here is to be kind to each other and to help each other out. And that's how America was founded, obviously. I mean, it's, well, sort of, I mean, I guess you could say we murdered like all the indigenous people that we could <laughs> in order to, uh, that, that too, that too. <laughs> in order to create our homesteads, you know, but it's just, it's just, I don't know. I mean, it, it is really discouraging. I, I think about that a lot. And, that, and that's one thing, like if I ever did make money, you know, if this, film, if this book were made into a film and I did earn a lot of money, I've already told friends, maybe I said this because I want to hold myself to it. I'm like, I'm going to help you put your kids through college. You got it. I'm going to do it if I can, you know? And, and part of it is too, like my parents are both very generous. My mother grew up in a family of nine people. She was the, or nine kids. She was the oldest of nine kids. My mom, was my, mom family. Was, my mom was from a family of nine too. Yeah, I mean, it's a good Catholic family, I guess. Yeah. It's a crazy Catholic family. I yeah. don't know. I just know birth but control. But she, like, they didn't have anything. You know, I'm thinking, like, how did they make ends meet? My grandparents worked at the washing machine factory, Speed Queen and Rippin. Both of them did. And they were raising nine kids, you know. And and so my mom grew up, you know, not having a lot. And so as an adult, she's really generous. I mean, she's always making meals for people and watching that when I, and giving really nice presents to people and helping people out who need it. And I'm like, that's important. Like, I wish more people would do that. It's not that hard to be that way. I don't think, um, yeah, but it's also there's this guilt. Like you see someone who's sitting outside the movie theater, who's homeless and you're like, do I have to give them a dollar again? I did the other day, you know, it's just, anyway, I cut you off. No, it's just like, and the thing about it too, that worries me is that like, again, I think I've seen like decent, well-meaning people, who I like quite a bit, you know, I even love them, you know, but I've, yeah, seen, yeah. I've seen them like, I, I can sometimes look at them and be like, my God, you have it so good. Like, why are you so insulated? It's like, did, have you lost your mind? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I and, and it, it makes me worry. Yeah. It makes me worried about, it makes me think to myself, like, you know what? Like, this is like, if, if uh, I go on to some, someday have a bunch of money, like this could happen to me just as easily. Like, I'm no better. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, it almost feels like a peril of it. Like, you've got to be really vigilant to make sure that you don't begin to sleepwalk or something, or you don't forget. Yeah, what, for, yeah. You don't, you don't forget you, what it was like to sleep. Yeah. You know, you know there, I don't know if you've read that book by Tracy Kidder, Mountains Beyond Mountains, about the um, the guy, Dr. Paul Farmer, who, who lives most, I think he spends most of his time in Haiti. It was this huge, it's just an amazing book. But um, this guy, Paul Farmer, donates most of his time and he, he lives and he works in this health clinic that I think he established. But he gets a lot of his funding from this this contractor in Boston. I think this guy's name is Tom White. And Tom White just basically told Paul Farmer at one point, he's like, you know what, I don't want to have any money left when I die. I wanted you to, I want to give it all to charity. And 
I want to have enough, you know, obviously so that I can feed myself. I don't know if he has a wife or kids because they'd have something to say about that too. But I was just like, wow, how did he get like that? Like, how did this guy, Tom White, who made like millions of dollars in construction or whatever it is he's doing, like, how did he turn into the person he is? He wants to give all this money to a health clinic in Haiti. You know, this guy who he's, I don't know how they met, but Farmer, I think, went to Harvard Medical School. But I, I just, I'm like, I wish that, you know, just even small giving and small gestures of generosity every day were more part of like our education as kids. Because I was educated by my parents. My dad's also really generous. And so what, I, what I mean, he, I'm lucky. What, is he, what did your parents do? Are they, were they creative people? Yeah, well, my mom is a veterinarian. But the interesting thing about that is she, working, coming from this working class family, it wasn't until she met my dad, Terry, who's actually, he's my, he's, he's my biological father. My mom were divorced when I was a kid, but Terry raised me from the time I was three. He, he, he was a journalism major and he's a writer and a reader, but he's actually, he actually worked for a while at the Options Exchange. But my mom started going to undergrad when I was a kid. Um, and she, it took her like eight years to get her undergrad degree. And so the four years I was in high school, she went to University of Wisconsin-Madison for her veterinary degree, and she would come home on the weekends to Libertyville. So I, I think that was, my dad actually said to me too, he's like, you know, I think the reason why you were able to make a go of things as a writer is because you saw your mom like stubbornly persisting. Like week after week for four years, she was driving up to Madison two and a half hours. And she did well. I mean, she was, did very well in her studies and you know, she's been, now been a veterinarian since 1989. She graduated with her degree like a week before I graduated from high school. And so I just, they're both just such, I think they're just great people. And um, they're, you know, they were, they had, they, I think, you know, I think of, I, as I said before, like seeing movies when I was a kid with them. And then also both of them being readers. I mean, they always took me to the library and, all those things were just a big part of my upbringing and, and it did make me stubborn. Like I just was like, Oh, my mom can do it. And my dad is very hard worker. And, you know, I think like that's one thing I worry about like teaching today too, is I've talked about this with a number of friends, like how we have this really child centered um, country and you have a small child. So I don't know how you and your wife are raising your kids, but it's like, I would never talk back to a teacher when I was a student, you know, in the eighties and the seventies. Now it's like, you're getting emails from them or their parents and they're sort of like manipulating you. Like, well, I need to get an A in this class. And it's like, what? I'm the one who decides based on the work that you turn into me. <laughs> but I, I mean, I guess I'm going off on a tangent again, but I, I, um, you know, I'm sort of anxious. I think there's this really, this really selfish spirit at work. You know, like I just feel like everyone's out for their own. Well, but this is thing the thing. And... This is the thing, though, is that, I, and I think like this is it's related. It's the whole like ninety nine percent versus one percent argument. I think there's a lot of truth. Yeah. It's not even an argument. It's a reality. Like there's like the one percent of the country which is getting most of the largesse, and then there's the rest of us who are not. And when you have like a system, I think, and and whatever form that it takes, whether it's, um, yeah, I don't know publishing business or whether it's some other business or whether it's your neighborhood mm -hmm. or it's your city. I think when things are tipped like that, it's, it's not healthy for society. And I think people, what it does is it makes people less trusting of one another and more envy mm -hmm. and more envious of one another. I mean, if they've actually, I mean, I've read articles where they've done studies on this. I tend to believe them, you know, like it mm -hmm. just, it just seems like unhealthy for people when the system is like, there's that much inequality. There's like this glorious 1% that is like collecting 
um, you know, mm-hmm. huge mm-hmm. paychecks and has like multiple homes and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then there's, you know, everyone else who's like basically like subsistence living, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, or they're just, or they're living a middle class lifestyle, but they have so much debt. Right. It's it's frightening, you know. Yeah, I I don't. I mean, I I think there's got to. I say this. I'm like, well, there used to be that people would have revolutions. You know, they would do things to overthrow the 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 order of you know the the dominant political system or whatever it is that's causing us to live the way that we do that are bad, you know, for, for communities. But now it's like we have, I mean, this is like so silly for me to say this, but it's like we have, we have a lot of food. We're not like let them eat cake. You know, we, we have a lot of people who are in the country who especially, I mean, that's the thing that's so ironic is the poor are often so unhealthy and overweight. It's like we're anesthetized by TV and junk food. And as long as you have those things, as long as you can play your Xbox and, you know, you, you have these comforts. You're not going to be rebelling. There's not going to be a big change. And then we're also, like, you know, we're, we're all listening to our iPods. We're all very afraid, I think, of interacting with strangers. It, I don't think it used to be that way. I mean, even as a kid in the 70s, I just, I think I felt like my neighborhood when I would go out and play in Green Bay, everyone knew each other and everyone's kids were playing together. And there's much more of a sense of, like, if something happened, people would be able to help you. But now I think people really try to stick to, them, stick to their own thing and hide away if they can. Listen, um, I listen, know there are exceptions. Listen to podcasts. There's certainly exceptions. Pardon? I said everyone's just walking around listening to podcasts, like sneering, <laughs> sneering at each other. I guess. This is, yeah, a, this, yeah. is a, this is a safe way to interact with strangers. That's why I've created this. So people can feel yeah. like they're having a conversation with people they don't know. <laughs> they want to meet us when they hear this. Or else they want to like start blogs saying snarky things about us. I, I don't know. know. They're all they're all envying you right now because your book was on the cover of the New York Times book review. <laughs> they're ready to tear it down. Yes, they're like just waiting for their chance to disparage you in an Amazon review. Oh my god. <laughs> I know. Uh, okay, so yeah, well, let's talk about uh, what happens. First of all, have you gotten any feedback on book sales since your book was on the cover of the New York Times Book Review? Has your publisher been telling you, like, oh, my God, like, the thing is selling? Or is not, <laughs> has, has it been disappointing? Like, what happens when that happens? You know, you don't. it's funny because agents and editors and publicists are very secretive. They don't really tell you what your sales figures are. And because the um, book bullshit. reviews, <laughs> I, I want to know. It's your book. But, you know, funny, pardon? I said it's your book. You should get to know. I know. We don't, though, because, and this is, a, you know, something that comes about sellers. Then they'll be like, oh, it's selling. We, you know, we did like five print runs and we're doing fine. And, you know, but I think because, again, this is so, it's a shame that it's such an irony that even though people are obsessed with Hollywood, uh, readers who consider themselves like highbrow or elitist readers are not necessarily going to pick up my book because I think they think, oh, it's just going to be like, you know, this pot boiler and, oh, it's about the son who's like Harrison Ford's son. But it's really not like that at all. I mean, it's it's really about family. I write very character-driven fiction. The stories that I've published in journals and in Best American and the current Penn O'Henry prize stories they, they're not about like people, you know, blowing up things and having sex with their boss and the casting couch and all that stuff. It's really not about that. It's about like, how do you connect to your father when he's this famous guy 
how how do you like live your life? Like, what do you do? And if you're his ex-wife, how resentful are you of the fact that he cheated on you? It's just as normal, like normal. I can say they're not abnormal, but that they are abnormal. They're not, but it's just like people who are not famous. It's the same problems. That's the thing I wanted to say. Like these people who are famous, they also worry about things. They wake up in the middle of the night worrying about things. And a lot of those things are the same things we worry about. I really believe that. And that's, I mean, that's the book that I wanted to write and I hope I did. And so have you, have you, uh, heard back, have you heard back from friends and family members who have read it? Have you gotten any weird, like, I don't know, emails from, have you, has anyone famous read it and been like, you wrote my story or anything? <laughs> no, not, not, not yet. Because, you know, the thing is the reader response individually, like a number of booksellers, um, a couple of them in New England and then, um, the tattered cover in Denver, like they read the book in galleys and they wrote back these lovely reviews to Bloomsbury and were like, wow, this is really not what I expected. I was really skeptical when I first picked it up, but then it was such a good book and she really got these characters down and I felt, I felt really invested in them. So the response individually has been really good, but I think like with some of the other galleys and the net galley that Bloomsbury put out to a lot of, people who are not necessarily readers of literary fiction, but picked up this book thinking it was going to be like, you know, like a Jackie Collins book, which, you know, I, I haven't read her books, but I imagine they have their merits. You know, I'm sure they're a really fun read. That's what I think they expected. They were like, oh, there's eight different characters in this who have it, you know, there's eight different point of view characters. I just didn't feel like I connected with them. And, you know, that, and I'm, you know, that's frustrating for me because I think, well, you didn't, I don't think you expected the book to be, what it is you know it's not plot driven there's plenty of stuff that happens um but my interest is in the interiority of the characters like i want to know what it's like to inhabit someone else's sensibilities and so that's always what i'm trying to do when i'm writing uh and so you know eight different people all of them very different from me for the most part i just it was a challenge but it was it was great like i enjoyed it so much and so thankfully yes they're the serious readers who are like not prejudging it have been very supportive. And Curtis Sittenfeld, I love her work, like especially her first and third novels. I read all three of them. I was so excited that she was so excited about my book. I mean, she was really the perfect person to review it too, because American Wife, she does the same thing. She's like imagining what it's like to be Laura Bush and why she would marry George Bush. Laura Bush, is, like, Laura Bush is fascinating. There's something, yeah. There's something behind those like Stepford wife eyes. Like I don't know what's going on, but like she's there's. <laughs> She looks not listen. I, I joke. She looks like she's zonked on some sort of pill. She just looks a little zonked to me. But like I think she's she actually, might be. She might be. Maybe she's like on Valium yeah. or something. But she's actually, um, you know, when you hear her speak and you read her biography, she's there's a lot of depth to her. And there's like, what's it like to be married to him? And I don't know. I think that I understand Curtis's fascination with her, and I share it. Mm -hmm. I think there's something. Yeah. There's some. There's something good going on in in Laura Bush. I think you know. Well, she was like a like a liberal librarian, I think, when she met George Bush. And yeah. it's like such a strange match, you know, but yeah. that was a challenge. But I thought Curtis Sittenfeld did a great job writing that. I love that book. I couldn't put it down either. So I was so did you, like, well, so, she got so, it right. So Curtis Sittenfeld wrote the review in the New York Times and did you were you in touch with her at all? Did you thank her like in an email? Did I you? wrote her a thank you. Yeah. I wrote her a thank you through Facebook. I don't know if she got it. I haven't heard back from her, but would you like to say a few promoting... words? Would you like to say a few words? Pardon? Would you like to say a few words to Curtis directly? <laughs> <laughs> this is you, you have the floor. Well, yeah, you know, Curtis, I wow, I thank you for what you did for you don't me. Have, I mean, you I... don't have to do that. That's embarrassing. But I understand like <laughs> 
whenever, whenever. No, but I also I'm like I loved Prep. I don't know. That was such a great book too. I just, I it was. I don't know if you read it, but my wife, awesome. my wife loved Prep. My wife. Oh my, my god, such a good book. Any book set in a prep school, my wife loves. That's just it. <laughs> She didn't, and she didn't go to prep. She didn't go to prep school. I think she. Just, I didn't either. I went to Libertyville High School in Jackson yeah. Elementary in I, Green I'm, Bay. I'm so. a, yeah, I'm a public school kid all the way. But like you know, for my, yeah. my my wife loves like teen dramedy and com. You know what I'm saying? Like anything where there's yeah. like snarky, yeah. teen, like snarky teenagers abusing one another. Mean girls. Yes. I like Mean Girls too. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, so are you going to keep writing in this vein? Do you have like an idea for a sequel with these characters? Are you done with them? Are you done with Hollywood, or do you think you've like found your terrain you know i'm not done with hollywood i don't think but i don't really see myself writing a sequel to this book um i know some people would like it because they're like what happened at the end i'm like it's life there's not really any closure you know we don't get answers to all the questions that we want answers to unfortunately um and which is what i think literary fiction does and that's why a lot of people don't like to read it because it reflects you know realistic experience when it's done well and so and that's often frustrating like you know we break up with someone and then we don't get to say what we want to say to them. And or we don't really know why they broke up with us or it, that's, you know, that's just part of being an adult and having to deal with that uncertainty, which is not easy. I mean, that's why so many people are on antidepressants, <laughs> I think, you know, so um, I don't know. I mean, I'm working on something now that's set mostly in Paris um, because having been there a number of times, I'm also living in France for a year in the 90s. I just I realized in that chapter in Little Known Facts that takes place in Paris late in the book, that was my favorite chapter to write probably. I just had a great time writing that. I'm like, I need to write more about France. Paris is, you know, as much like it's 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 so beaten to death in literature, you know, the whole like American going to yeah. Paris. But it's such, right. it's such a great place. France is great. It is. Paris is beautiful. Yeah. It's a great I have city. a lot to say about the French too, I think, in comparison to Americans. And that's really what the book's about. What do you think about it's, them in a nutshell? You know, I think the French actually have a lot of things right. Like, I, they value a lot of things that I think are really important. And one thing too, I mean, they do have supermarkets and mega malls and stuff like that, but not many. They really, like, they, they go each day to the bakery and buy their baguette. I mean, that sounds like a stereotype, but it's generally true. Yeah. And they, and they buy fresh flowers and they spend time at the table. Like I remember Saturday, Saturday or Sundays, I'd go, I'd eat with my host family in their house and they'd have friends over and it would be like a five hour lunch. <laughs> so the quality of life, I think for a, and like in Italy too, there's these little towns where people live to be like 95 routinely because community and family is such a huge part of their lives and they take time over meals and the French do that. I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them do. I mean, they, and they like, they buy a lot of their food in these individual little stores, like the, like the pig butcher and the, and the beef butchers, they have separate shops, you know, for, for different types of meat. And they have these cheese stores and they have the bakeries and the Pichisri and and the vegetable markets and it's they still live like that you know and I and I and they're urban like Paris you know they all have the you know sexy clothes and they're I was gonna say they're cute so, little they're, dogs they're, yeah they're all they're like <laughs> just like the little kids in like the Luxembourg Gardens playing with their boats in the fountain it's just yeah like, oh god yeah. yeah they really I mean of course you can say that they have problems but which I mean which country doesn't and and I think but I think they have a lot of things right and I and Italy too I've spent some time there and. They just, I think Europeans do, I mean, they look at us like we're just idiots, like, oh, you don't want to make abortion legal, what are you, crazy, why, you know, why is there even a question of this, and, 
what what's the deal with these fundamentalists running your government? <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I mean, I, they look at us and they like, they raise their eyebrows and I don't blame them. I mean, I would too, if I were them. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I just, I just want to like get a baguette. <laughs> <laughs> and some wanna, cheese. I just, yeah, every day. I just once a day get a baguette and some cheese. Like that's a good way to live. And then um, <laughs> have a five hour lunch. Why is this so hard? And, and instead we've got like Marissa Mayer telling people, um, you know, that they can't telecommute while she's like sitting in her private nursery. I'm really, I know. I'm really frustrated with that. I'm pissed off. I don't like that at all. I, I, yeah, I don't blame you. I feel angry too. I want to start. A, I want to start a revolution. Is that why? You, that, that, this is a good way to close. Is that why you wrote your book secretly? Is that you're trying to start a revolution? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm, I don't. I'm not. That's not why. I think people think I wrote it to like apologize for rich celebrities, but that's not it either. I just wanted to try to like understand where we're thinking that we're projecting all of their fantasies, our, all of our fantasies onto them. Like, oh, they have these perfect lives. Well, they don't. And we shouldn't be projecting our fantasies onto them because they are prey to the same problems. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, we don't need to apologize for them anyway. But I just think, like, we have to be a little bit more self-reflection about how we view the people who we made famous. And, and that also has reflection on our own lives and what we value like the French, you know, like we need to get those baguettes and spend time on watching good French movies too. Um, what did you Instead say? Instead of all American movies. I, I'm just losing you there a little bit. What's, uh, what's oh. up? Hold Are you up. still there? Yeah, I'm still here. You just, like, okay. just make sure the microphone's like, you know, or whatever. Yeah, I havenn't moved. I don't know why I did that. Let's oh, okay. change. I, it, it's AT&T sometimes. Because... Oh, it's a little spotty. Well, um. What's uh you, you talk about like celebrities having the perfect lives, you know, and like how we're at least how we think we they do, um, because they're like, you know, they have these swimming pools and these gated mansions or whatever. But what is your idea of a perfect life? Do you have one? Do you have like a, a vision of the future that you're working towards that you think would be ideal? You know, I would love to be able to live part of the year in France actually, if I could afford to do it. And and I and I actually like teaching. So if I could teach like one or two classes every year, creative writing, fiction, in particular, I would love to do that and teach and read and write. That's really what I'd like to do. Well, that sounds good to me. Yeah, <laughs> I think it would be good. But you know, it's funny because once you get these things you think you want, they often aren't what you expect. I think we find ways to be unhappy. It's, yeah, all it's of a unfortunate. sudden, all of a sudden, you'll be in your cute little apartment in Paris, and you'll be like, the French people are assholes. Fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> the bread stinks. Yeah, what am I talking yeah, about? This cheese is disgusting. It smells like a sewer. Um, <laughs> but uh, on that note, it has been a great pleasure. It has been a great pleasure talking with you. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, congratulations on all the success with this book. It's a very exciting time for you. And uh, I'm happy for you. Thank you, Brad. It was really great to talk with you, too. I had such a good time. Okay, you guys, that's Christine Sneed. Go get her book. Uh, it's called Little Known Facts. It's available now from Bloomsbury. You can find her online at christinesneed.com. She's on the Facebook, and you can find her on Twitter, uh, where her handle is at Christine Sneed. So uh, second half of the doubleheader. Let's just go right there. Quick transition, elegant, efficient, appropriate. Uh, my next guest is Stephanie Barber. She has a hyphenate a multimedia artist and writer. She makes films, many of which are centered on the content, musicality, and experiential qualities of language. Her work has been shown in a variety of fancy places around the world, including MoMA in New York, the Tate Modern in London, the Whitney Museum, uh, MOCA right here in Los Angeles, the Paris Cinematheque, 
and so on and so forth. And now she has a new book out, a kind of experimental text available from Publishing Genius Press. It is called Night Moves, and it is a compilation of YouTube comments that were found underneath a video presentation of the classic Bob Seger song, Night Moves. It's interesting. It's internet-based. Uh, it is an interesting window into the human condition, and uh, I figured I would share it with you. So let's do this. Here we have my conversation with Stephanie Barber, and her new book, once again, is called Night Moves. I am in um, Baltimore, Maryland, and at my kitchen table. I have um, my legs up, they're crossed, but I'm on a chair, but somehow I'm sitting cross-legged on a kitchen chair. And on the table is an invitation to a wedding, somebody named Jennifer Elaine. I don't know who she is. It's a book by Kate Greenstreet, which is really beautiful. Disc by Lena Mercado. Do you know who she is? No. Who is that? She's a Hawaiian um, singer and um, ukulele player from like the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and it's a CD I'm really moved by, called Hawaiian Songbird. There's a stack of um, cards. I think that my whereabouts just became my what about. <laughs> There's a stack of cards here for a show in um, in New Jersey called Proto Cinematic Investigations. Works by Stephanie Barber, Robert Flowers, Ariana Kerstein, Sandra Gibson, Monteith McCullum, Bruce McClure, Louis Recoder, Mark Street, and Mark Wilson. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so. I have a cup of coffee. Yeah, which is an important part. That is an important part. Well, all of these cards are, all of these objects on my table, and I'm separating them out to, like, better compositionally organize my kitchen table um, so that if God looks at it, it will look nice or more evenly balanced. Everything on my kitchen table is equally important and not important. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, 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 yeah. so I want to add, I mean, because you have kind of like a varied artistic life like you've published this book but you've all, you also do work in film and uh you know from what i hear you you had like sort of an interesting childhood i mean i got i got an email from adam and i've heard some things and uh your publisher and he and would said, you talk about my childhood no just you know things you did uh people you knew your grandfather you've got like this interesting artistic background and i want to get into all mm -hmm. of it so why don't we start at the beginning and then we can kind of like roll into the book and the rest of it and and just go from there. So where are you from originally? Um, I'm from New York, from Long Island. Uh, yeah, in the past. I'm from the past <laughs> and I'm from Long Island. A lot of times those two things go together, but sometimes they don't. Okay, so you, you were born in New York City or born on Long Island. I don't understand how it works. You're... I was born on Long Island, yeah. Okay. and it seems uh... like you'd be born in either. You can just choose. <laughs> <laughs> right before you're coming out, you just like put in a request. And, um, you know, obviously they can't fill them all. But, um, yeah, I chose Long Island, a town called Riverhead. Um, yeah, Riverhead is like a um, town smack dab in the middle of Long Island, and Long Island is a beautiful place, surrounded by water, as many islands are. 
<laughs> and so, that's uh, in Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, did you grow up going into the city? Like, I mean, obvi- obviously, you're, you've got proximity, but I know people who grew up on the outskirts of New York City that who didn't necessarily spend a ton of time in Manhattan proper. Like, was that your childhood, or was your childhood more of like a suburban Long Island existence? Well, there's a lot of uh, Long Island that aren't at all suburban. Like, I grew up. I mean, I lived in a lot of different places, but, you know, sometimes I lived in apartments above bars. and um, I did have a suburban chunk, um, but, uh, yeah, I went into Manhattan a lot when I became a teenager. My family didn't do it that much. I mean, I lived in Manhattan for maybe a little minute with some boyfriend of my mother's at some point as a child, and my grandfather, who was a musician, um, and who I lived with, he was one of the people that raised me. I lived with him for a number of years. Uh, he played music in uh, New York a lot, so we would go in, you know, fairly regularly. But um, when I became a teenager, I would go by myself, just take a train to the city, and uh, yeah. That sounds, that, sounds, that sounds so great. <laughs> that sounds like the greatest thing ever to be able to do when you're a teenager. Just get on the train. I know. Yeah. And it's almost, I mean, the way that, you know, when you're a teenager, it's like driving seems like the most, like you can't even believe that you're going to get to that stage where you can just drive somewhere. I would just, you know, like go out and drive. But yeah, going into, the, into Manhattan felt like that. Like, ah, oh, finally I can just, walk just walking around wherever you want to go is great and going to see shows and going to um yeah just being able to sit on the street and just watch people felt super fascinating sometimes i would just cut school go into the city literally just sit on a street corner somewhere and then just go home you know five hours later (laughs) watch people yeah where did you grow up i'm from indiana so this is all this sounds very exotic to me you know like i didn't yeah well you should go to new york one day (laughs) well i bet i mean i visit i visited i know i'm kidding many times since but it's like (laughs) it's just such a um you know light years removed experience compared to my youth yeah, yeah, I, I figured that you had probably been there. Yeah, but, you know, I think that you can romanticize anything. Like, Indiana um, seems pretty fascinating to me. <laughs> you don't have to say my... that. You don't have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, not to jump to night moves, but that whole notion of, like, this Midwestern landscape of kind of, like, frustrated, bored, sexy, antsy kind of teenagers... Feel, you know, like that's what Indiana means to me. And actually, there's a song on the radio right now in the new country, hitting all the new country markets called, um, I don't know what the exact name of it is, but the gist of it is in these flyover states. Like the narrative, the, um, the singer is talking about he's on an airplane and some people next to him are talking about, like, look at those squares, those cat, those States down there, like you couldn't pay me enough to live there, and then he launches into this, um, like just really poetic ballad about how important those flyover states are. A <laughs> 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 flyover states—I had never heard that phrase before. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, yeah. like I know people. I think I know people who've never been to any place in the United States except for coastal cities. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. there's a whole world there that I think a lot of people don't even have 
um, yeah. you know, a mental picture of, but, um, but back to you. And, spent, go ahead. Okay. Well, I was going to say, I spent a lot of time, um, in my twenties, I just lived in my car and drove around America for around six months. Um, and just like feeling like how big the country is and how really diverse and how sort of aimless one could be in, in the traversing of it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I mean, I haven't traveled as widely as I would like, but I've been, I've been around to different countries and, you know, you can say a lot of different things about the United States, but like in terms of just the land itself, the real estate and the varied terrain, whether it's like the, you mm-hmm. know, the Grand Canyon and the, the, the West or it's, you know, the deep South, there's a lot of different stuff going on. There's a lot of like grandness to the landscape that I yeah. think I wish, you know, and you know, I talk about traveling to other countries, but it's like, I haven't even seen all of my own <laughs> by a long shot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it's pretty good to see any of them. <laughs> I don't know, like, you're, yeah, you're somebody else's. Uh, I think it's, like, good for your soul to see different landscapes. What? Somehow, like, some animal part of us in terms of, like, our evolution, you know, like the safety of seeing mountains in the distance. Or the way that, like, Japanese landscape designers in the... Um, 1700s, their big sort of ethos and push and what they wrote a lot about in regards to their art is anytime you're making a small garden, the one of the main compositional elements is Mount Fuji. You know, that's so moving to me. When I was in, like, on the West Coast in Seattle or Portland, uh, just seeing those mountains kind of like... It's unbelievable how different that feels, like the way you think about your position on the planet, where your feet are on the ground, and you become dwarfed due to that. The way you sort of feel that near an ocean, have you ever gotten that? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I, you know, especially coming, I, you know, I grew up in a landlocked environment. So the first time I ever saw the ocean, like really stood on the beach and looked at the ocean was when I was 12. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. I definitely. I mean, I was definitely eager to see it, and then I wound up going to college in Colorado. So I think, like, having mountains, especially because Indiana is notoriously flat, you know, flat, flat. Yeah, it wasn't an accident. And I think, you know, I love living near mountains. I love, and I love living near the ocean. I mean, I live in Los Angeles now, so I sort of get spoiled by both. But uh, oh yeah, it's I like I like that, and I like grand landscapes and stuff like that. I find that like very comforting. Yeah, me too. Comforting and inspiring. Yeah, and also I like the idea, I guess, of being able to escape. It's nice to have the ocean there. I have this like thing that if, if the shit ever really hit the fan, I could like somehow steal a boat or something. You know? Yeah, yeah. I like the idea <laughs> if the shit hits the fan and then you go out on a boat. I just feel like the blades of the fan are going to fling it onto you anyway. I think if the shit hits the fan, what you should do is get a hot air balloon and go above the fan. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. I could, you know, I've never been in a hot air balloon, though. I'm a little sketchy. I haven't either. It just seems sketchy. It's like you have this balloon, but then you've got a fire inside of it. It just seems like something could go wrong. I know. (laughs) That's a really good point. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But I want to say right before talking to you, Earlier, I was doing a, a studio visit with a student of mine, and the project he's doing, it's really, like, so super beautiful. Um, these two um, slide projectors, like old, you know, 
clickety-clackety slide projectors um, facing each other with this long balloon in between, just like pressed into the light. And yeah, that's <laughs> just balloons in general. I feel like I've been thinking about all day. Higher in balloons seems incredibly sketchy, but just the concept of balloon at all seems kind of um, like happenstance. Who who invented that? <laughs> Let's put air in the, in the air with like a thin sheet of something around it. Plastic. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I don't know, but it you know, it seems there's something beautiful about them too. I like to look at them from the ground. I don't know if I want to be in that basket, like, but I'm I'm maybe working towards that. <laughs> you gotta just work day and night, work towards it. One day you can maybe attain a higher balloon ride. So um, I want to continue with your bio, just so I can get an understanding of uh, you know how you became you. So like, yeah. par- parents were artists. Like you, you said, you you said you lived. No. With, you, you said you lived with your grandparents and with your mother, and like you were. It sounds like kind of a peripatetic childhood. You were moving around from place to place. Yeah, and maybe I'm a little bit um, protective of, you know. Um, yeah, I lived with a lot of different people at different times, and um, my parents were not artists. My only uh, one, my grandfather was a musician, um, and um, yeah, and it was chaotic and magical and, uh, you know, um, unsupervised. So yeah, you say you had you had like sort of one of those childhoods where you could kind of do what you wanted without much yeah. restriction. I do. Mm-hmm. Did you yeah. have to? Did you did you have to like kind of raise? I mean, do you feel like you kind of raised yourself or no? Yes, you do. Yeah, and um, my older sister and she did some raising of me as well. But yeah, we sort of raised ourselves. Um, what did you? I don't know. I what mean, did you, what did your folks do? Not. What did your folks do uh, if they weren't artists? They're not artists. They're they're mysterious. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure what they do. Um, I mean, I am in some ways. Uh, I think I don't really want to talk about. It. Isn't that horrible? <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I mean, I, will, I certainly won't make you go there if you don't want to talk. I'm just cu- you know, just curious. Yeah, I'm. Um, yeah, every yes. I think that um, children are um, things that are around that don't entirely own their memories. They're sort of like they carry like one small portion of them and then everybody around them sort of helps to carry the memories. And so in that way, they're really unreliable. But, um, you know, my parents were teenagers when they had me, and uh, like a lot of uh, people that have children, when they're children, they don't exactly know what they do, you know? They don't exactly do much, um, and then, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, then they grew up, and they, yeah, yeah. Are you still in touch with them? I am, yes. Okay. I'm in touch with my parents. So what kind of kid were you if you were if your sister was kind of re- helping to raise you and you were living with your grandfather for certain periods and so on and so forth and you had this kind of uh, um, independent life like were you like you seem like a very cheerful person but like were you as a kid did you you know were you, were you bitter about this <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> therapeutic um well 
I am cheerful um, and not. And I, as a child, was um, so many different things, you know, because I lived with so many different, um, in so many different scenarios, I think I was probably um, really adaptable and I changed depending on the situation. I was, um, you know, uh, sometimes really brave and sometimes really um, fearful. My older sister was incredibly, incredibly brave and, um, and like, righteous. She had a sense of um, ethics and morals and a sort of, like, really deeply understood sense of fairness and goodness from the time she was very young. Uh, she was, like, a noble kid, and I think I um, really sort of took all my cues from her so that we would do things like... Um, you know, like a lot of, we would steal things and break into people's houses and stuff like that. But we were, um, but there was a sort of sense of uh, not doing anything wrong. <laughs> if that can, if those two things can um, sort of get together, like we would never tease another child um, when we, yeah, would steal candy or, I don't know. I don't really love talking about my childhood, and I don't really know where I'm going with this. Um, yeah. Well, it's sad, no, but it actually sounds really fascinating. Like, I, I, I hope you don't... It want... is super fascinating, but I, um, you know, I... Um, it is. I had a, an incredibly fascinating childhood, but in some ways, it, um, it feels like when you... When something is sort of taken down for the record, then... Um, it becomes immutable in a way that I don't entirely feel that comfortable with. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I get it. I get it. I just think that like, you know, I'm always fascinated with, uh, you know, when I talk to writers or artists or whatever, I'm always, I think it just always plays a role in how they, how they formed. So that's the reason I ask. And, um, yeah. I'll just, I'll just, I'll pick at you like just a little bit more and then we can move on. But like you mentioned a couple of things that like sound fascinating. Like, first of all, um, you, you know, your sister, you said, had this kind of like innate sense of morals and ethics and um, had this kind of nobility, it sounds like, to her. Mm-hmm. And yet, yeah. it, you know, if you guys were sort of like, you know, on your own as kids to a large extent, like, do you have any sense of where that comes from? Because I know people like that. Yeah, from books. From books. Okay. Because that's like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's always so fascinating to me how some people have that and they don't mm-hmm. have, and, and by by virtue of circumstance, they don't necessarily have any right to have that when you look at it from the outside, mm-hmm. but she sort of taught, mm-hmm. she sort of taught herself. Yeah. I mean, we both, um, read a lot as kids do. And we both, um, you know, uh, yeah, had that as a, um, sort of touchstone, but she really, really, really read a lot. And, um, she was just, yeah, I don't know how people come out. Sure. I mean, I also was obsessed with goodness, but I was really, um, in a much, like, I was extremely religious. Like, I would go, and nobody in my family was but me. I would go and walk to church on my own, and um, I would go to confession before I was even, you know, like, I, I didn't go through the proper channels. I would just go into that confession booth and tell, tell on people, <laughs> basically. And, you know, from when the time I was really young. So I had a sense of, like, 
a um, sort of struggle with good and bad and morals and questions like that. But I went to this sort of um, free, um, this kind of space, any you know, organized religion in which everything was kind of placed out there for you. You know, it's like a safer way to kind of deal with ethics as a small child. You know, there's an authority figure, there's a sort of caregiver, God as an absent parent. Um, a single dad. Uh, yeah. Yeah, a single dad. <laughs> he wasn't, yeah. Um, so what, or, were, you, were you going to, what, what kind of church were you going to? Like, what, did you have any kind of Catholic like... church. I'm sorry? I went to a Catholic church. Okay, so... I went to a lot of different Catholic churches. It was anywhere there where they would kind of find a church. Um to pray in and um, hang out in. <laughs> now, is that, a, is that, do you have like a family history of Catholicism or was it just random? Like you just walked into the Catholic one? I, um, it's a little bit both. We, uh, I had, my mother's mother is Catholic, so I think that we, um, yeah, we went to church with her when we would go visit her. She lived in Florida. Um, but um, as far as my, other um, family members, yeah, none of them were very interested in in that too much. That's sort of, <laughs> and are you still into it, or did you? Was that just sort of like a childhood thing? I am still very into um, considering spirituality, and I am sort of a wannabe religious person, but I don't um, I don't actually worship. And when I was a kid, I had a really horrible. Um, time when I sort of broke up with God, you know, when I was like uh, 12 or 13, that sort of, like, this really wrenching um, heartbreak uh, in in sort of recognizing the implausibility of this dude um, looking out for me. <laughs> but I spend a lot of my time thinking about uh, the sort of aspect of spiritualism in my life. Last year, or the year before now, I think, I was part of this um, study called the Hopkins Spirituality Study here in Baltimore, which is a really amazing project um, or, you know, um, study in which um, people are, you go every day, you meditate every day, and you go to these long um almost like therapy sessions where you talk about everything, like childhood and your present state and everything personal, everything um, in terms of your career, everything in terms of your dreams, and um, focus on these daily prayers. And um, then you take three really high doses of psilocybin. Oh, wow. At the the space, yeah. So the study is... um, And you did this? I did that, yeah, last year, two years, almost, I think it's two years now. It's a really um, super great study. I'm not really, I think it threw me off. I got flustered just trying to step through the landmine of my childhood. Um, <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, uh, um, The original study was um, for people that were in stage four cancer trying to contemplate their death. No, no, so, no. Um, I, I, did they write about this in the New York Times? Yes, it's a huge thing in the Times. Right. I was just going to say, I can send you this great article in Times. Yeah. So I read that article. Um, 
I think before I moved here to Baltimore, and I was uh, something that I was just really interested in. And when they opened up the study for people that are, um, you know, more for people who um, have a sort of lifelong interest in spirituality, either a spiritual practice, an ongoing spiritual practice, or a desire to have a spiritual practice. Um, and what they're trying to test in the more open one, the one that's not about cancer patients, is just find out how how does a um, whatever your spiritual practice, how does a spiritual practice change your you know sense of contentment or inclusion in the world? And one of the things that they did was interview three very close um, people to me, like. Uh, I think they do it every two months and still we'll have another follow-up. Like, have I become, am I better? Am I more at peace with the world now after focusing on this? There's a lot of focus on um, what happens after you die. Uh, a lot of focus on... Um, what does happen? Just we, kind we, of your most basic exercise. I'm not allowed to tell you. <laughs> See, I'm so sorry. It's one of the things I have to sign off. Right. Um, so, yeah. It's classified. Sorry. You could take it if you, I mean, you know, you could be part of the study if you want to. <laughs> okay, so, but let, like, let's let, talk to me about the uh, the psilocybin. So, like, you take this study and, like, you're, like, what is it, you know, you're talking to people, you're, you're instituting some meditation into your life, and then at some point they put you in a dark room under the influence yes. of psilocybin? Yes. How much, um, do, how much do they give you? And I don't exactly know the answer to that question. Um, what it is is it's, you do it three different times. You have what's called these sessions, and it's in a pill. And um, I think one of them is what's called a very high dose. They're, you know, they have like a dose, a high dose, a very high dose, you know, these sort of vague terms. Um, what it was described to me is, um, you know, like much higher dose than if somebody just took acid or something. You know, I don't know. Um how they describe high dose. Um, how did it manifest in you? Like, like how fu- how fucked up were you? <laughs> I was, yeah, it was really unbelievable. Um, so, also, you're in a, you're lying down on a couch, and you have your two guides, who are the people that have been you've been talking to all along throughout the year, and um, you're wearing very, like, very good um, eye shades because they. There's no light coming in, and you're wearing headphones, really, really super high-tech headphones, and listening to a piece of a, like, choreographed piece of music or a a piece of music that was designed by a um, music therapist, you know, a mixtape, basically, for the eight hours that you're live there. And um, take the pill, menu. Um, One of the things that's interesting and also interesting in terms of, like, not exactly wanting to talk about family is that they say, uh, you know, on the day that you have your session, bring in books and photographs or things that you want to, um, I don't think they said books, bring in, you know, like things that will make you feel comfortable, you know, things from your house, photographs, whatever. Stuff, and I brought a couple of stuffed art an- books. <laughs> like stuffed animals and uh, a blanket. Yeah, stuffed animals. <laughs> yeah, smuggled it. I smuggled in my real animals, which is a little bit weird, but um yeah, just yeah. You try to bring in your stuff, and I brought in these um, different art books, um, which I think that at first they thought like they were, um, non by not bringing in pictures of family, 
which I did for the other time because I realized that they were, they thought I was a cold-hearted person. But so you're just looking at these books with the people and you're talking to them about whatever after, you know, 10 minutes after you've taken it. And then um, for me, at least, I was like, oh, you know, I think I'm beginning to feel something I'd like to lie down. And um, they were like, okay, so you're putting your headphones on and your eye shades and put this blanket over your head. And then I just, um, I just cried the entire eight hours. <laughs> but in... Um, what were you thinking about? I was thinking about art and I was thinking how um, unbelievable the impulse to create everything that we've created as humans, how, what an unbelievable gesture that is and how much work we've put into it and what is it for. And it's so, I just felt like, wow, good job, humans. I can't believe that you have really, especially, you know, I'm thinking, I'm listening to Mozart and thinking like, wow, good job, Mozart. This is quite well made. <laughs> and then, wow, and and you, you know, symphony player, thank you for learning how to play that. And French horns, you're doing a great job. And then who was, who designed the space that they played in? Who was the recording engineer who put all of this time and effort to make me, make it able for me or anybody who listens to that particular recording, for us to be able to hear that and experience that? It just seems, I, it's just such a, um, a wonder. It's such an truly awesome impulse that we have as humans to put a lot of effort and time and thoughts and energy into creating these artifacts, these art pieces, a painting, a piece of music, a book. Um, yeah, I just felt like the most worshipful thing that, you know, we could give to the planet. It's just that crazy our existence. We're going to, you know, just be alive for like a minute. And then we take all this time to, you know, leave something, something beautiful, something transcendent, something worshipful. So my whole experience for that one was um, like, wow, humans, you are really doing a great job. And I really appreciate it because you're making my time here much more lovely than it could have been. So it was a good trip. It wasn't like you freaked out or had a bad time on it. And it seems like, no, a, seems like a nice way to out. do it. It seems like a nice way to do it. You're in a controlled environment. You've got a musicologist or a uh, music therapist like creating a mixtape for you. And then you've got like two, mm-hmm. men, like two men in lab coats there in case something goes terribly wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, although they were women, but yes. And they're there and they're, yeah, incredibly even better. brilliant. I feel like women are yeah. even, even more nurturing, and you know, like that would be great. You know, I want women near me. If I'm in that, you know, cir- you know, circumstance. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, was that the first time you'd ever done psilocybin? Um, so, I have done a little bit in um, <laughs> in the Virgin Islands with the donkey one time. Um, with the donkey, but it was pretty weak. Yeah, it was just like donkeys and St. John's is a Virgin Island, and there's. Um, like really steep, it's like a little tiny, um, yeah, there are roads that you can barely drive up because there are just these hairpin turns and then there's donkeys everywhere. So it's like a donkey and I, (laughs) 
And um, but it wasn't near as strong as this. It was like being, um, you know, it's also really pleasant and beautiful, but like being pretty high. And never had done acid or anything where I had like massive amounts of visuals and lost time and you know. Did you have visuals? I did, yeah. And did, um, and did you and did you also engage like m- issues of mortality, or did your uh, yes. Did your attendance prompt you at all, or was like was there maybe there was some subliminal messaging happening underneath the Mozart where like you know it was like you know someone tell, yeah. telling you to contemplate you know do you know what I'm saying like was it, was it all directed <laughs> yeah. by you or did they actually guide you into thinking about those things during the trip? Yeah, it's a great question. It was all guided to me, but the entire year in preparation for this was um, their guidance. You know, like that. There were certain, you know, and I would write them throughout, you know, there's a lot of journaling. and I would write my intentions for the experience. Um, I had been writing on that for, you know, in preparation. So um, thinking about death, and I have a lot of anxiety. I have, like, a lot of anxiety about death, even though I'm, you know, pretty excited by it, too. Uh, but So that was one of my things that I knew I was going to go into the piece into the um, session thinking about. So they don't talk to you, but you're allowed to talk to them if you want to. And um, Are they right next to you yeah. for the full eight hours or do they leave the room? They're sitting in the room, but I was so not aware of them. I mean, I was lying down the entire time and I covered myself with this blanket. And at one point, like in the, you know, I cried very, very hard and very loud and I, uh, I kind of came out of the blanket and I was like, don't worry, you guys. I'm crying, but it's really wonderful. I'm really fine. Don't worry. Because I didn't want them to think there's so much talk about what if you're afraid or what if you freak out and you have to go through all these um, sort of discussions with different people that um, will help you in the eventuality of uh, being addressed by fear, what you know, what your coping mechanisms could be. Um, so that, you know, they're very aware of that being a possible route. But I wasn't really afraid of being afraid, actually, which was something that I, you know, I figured, like, if I was going to freak out or be afraid, that probably would be, you know, something interesting or beneficial in some way. You know, maybe I need to be afraid. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like, it's like dying before you die or something. It seems like that's kind of yeah. the exercise. And so two more quick... I think re- so, yeah. Two more quick and related questions on it, and then um, we can get mm-hmm. on to other stuff. But... um what did you learn about how you feel about death and about death itself and then, um, you know, in the experience? And then do you feel better as a result of having participated in this? Like, did it, did it yield a pod? Did the psilocybin experience yield something really permanently positive in your life or was it fleeting? Mm-hmm. Um, permanently positive. Or well, I can't say permanently. So far, the last years, absolutely, um, absolutely. Positive, like one of the greatest things I've done. Um, it was, you know, that, yeah. But I mean, I could probably, you know, I could be tempted to say that about anything, like going to a symphony in and of itself. But in in light of that space and the, that kind of focus control, um, yeah, so absolutely positive. In terms of, not in terms of depth, though, I still have a lot of. Um, <laughs> it seems ridiculous to say. I have a lot of unresolved ideas, notions about death because necessarily it's like pure 
lack of resolution. I guess that's the nature of it, or ultimate resolution. I'm not sure. But um, I um, still have a lot of anxiety about that. But it's not crippling. Um, you know, some people do have, you know, pretty crippling anxiety around that. I have um, an ability to maybe be a... I just feel like kinder <laughs> and that is for myself and for everybody. I just think that it was like I got wrung out. You know, it's interesting before I went to it and I was really pretty scared um, or, you know, like amped up about it. There's so much prep work. You can't help but think like, well, this big thing's going to happen. But about a week before that, I was with a friend of mine having dinner and we weren't talking about this session. Um, talking about something else, and she said, um, she said, uh, and her hands kind of shake. She's a, always a little shaky. She's a really great person. She said, I think everybody is just doing the best they can. And we were talking about something else. And then during my, that experience, during the whole session, that phrase kept coming back to me, and I kept thinking, like, wow, what a great... Like, did she know that she was doing that for me? That she was like sending me off. Talk about when the shit hits the fan. You know, I felt like she put me in a boat with this little droplet of really kind, kind wisdom, and then shoved me off. Like, be okay. Everybody's just doing. You know, they're good. <laughs> they're humans. You know, like they're good and they're really trying to be good. And um, I think when you approach the world, like thinking that people are kind of bad or trying to get you, or like it is. It, it taints everything. And so I think she showed me off with this, like, really great piece of wisdom and easy perspective to switch. All you have to do is imagine that anybody saying something to you is just trying to be kind, and all of a sudden things kind of melt away and feel less frightening, right? Well, yeah. It's, I mean, at the very least, it's a better way to go into a, a big psilocybin trip. <laughs> it's... Yeah. And better way to um, address the CEO at the um, at the weekly staff picnic, <laughs> right? <exactly. laughs> so, um, and again, I'm not trying to draw you back into your youth, but you said something earlier. You just want me to cry? <laughs> no, I'm not trying to make you cry. I just want to clarify something because it's it's sticking in my brain, and I don't want my listeners to be sitting there wondering about it. But you mentioned that your sister and you would break into houses. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> like what? Just, just give me a little bit more. Oh. Um. Well, sometimes we would go into houses that were, and actually, I did this also with a good friend of mine. Um, we would go into houses that, uh, for when we, one of the towns I lived in is Southampton. It's a pretty famous town. Have you ever heard of it? Like the, like um, the Hamptons. Yeah, the Hamptons, Southampton. Sure. Yeah. yeah, Southampton, East Hampton, all around there. So um, there's a lot of mansions that are there, and people live in them, you know, for the summer or sometimes not even the summer, just for a weekend. So we would, you know, find ourselves in those houses and, and not do anything. You know, I mean, we're like, you know, five, six, seven-year-olds, um, swim in a pool, sit in the room, pretend to, like, throw a dinner party dance um, on glass top tables. Um, I've always been really fascinated by carpeting 
And so I would sort of engage in carpet things that one does with carpet when you're a child, you know, just like tunneling your feet on carpet or pretending that it's, you know, some sort of universal, you know, landscape. Um, we, um, I remember going to some house, but this wasn't a rich person's house. I don't know what this house was. Um, that it might have been, it was probably abandoned, but maybe a um, homeless person lived there. And maybe it had been a hoarder's house or pretty close to a hoarder. Um, and there were all these uh, paint supplies. Um, the, you know, pure pigment, you mix with whatever you mix it with, if you want oil or water. Um, yeah, and like making all these paintings with that pigment. We would go into houses that weren't yet built and I had a uh I would always write poems on the uh you know like the armature of the house, whatever it is, the beams before they're drywalled up. Um thinking, you know, like to kind of bless the house for the people that lived in there in the future. They would have these little bits of poems hidden behind their drywall and their electrical wires. That's sort of nice. Um Yeah, it was very nice. Everything we did was nice. It wasn't we wouldn't steal their stuff and you know, poop on their floral couches. We just sort of go in there because we lived in, you know, like a small apartment. And, um, yeah, swimming in other people's pools was a really big deal. Um, just exploring. You know, I think we thought we were like, um, you know, because we were raised by um, books. It's kind of like an inverse of like, you know, Leopold and Loeb, maybe that's one path you could go to. Good home, having memories by books, but then also, you know, all those characters, um, you know, like good girl characters that were adventurous, you know, Pippi Longstocking is obvious, um, sort of brave and adventurous, but good, and yeah, we would just try to find things to do, find fun things to do. That sounds great. That sounds like something I would yeah. like to do. You know, I, you know. Yeah, you could still do it, actually. <laughs> I'm going to start <laughs> swimming in other people's pools in Beverly Hills. I'm just going to start driving out. We'll see how that goes, you know. You could do that. I know. See, that's the problem when you're an adult. Like, you, you know, it's just so embarrassing to get arrested for, like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> trespassing. It's like, yeah, it's like you have a couple of criminal coins in your purse and you don't want to, like, spend them on trespassing. Yeah, you gotta. If you're gonna go, if you're gonna go, you gotta make it worth it. You know, you want to. You gotta, yeah, right. It's gotta be something better, something to make Che Guevara kind of feel a little bit like raising his eyebrows, his fuzzy eyebrows in your direction. <laughs> so trespassing or shoplifting would be really embarrassing. So uh, you get into like at, at what point in your youth um, did you start to? realize yourself as an artist? I mean, I guess it was it very early on or like, what were you like as an adolescent, for instance, when you started going into New York, it sounds like you were already observing and, you know, checking people out and sitting on street corners and taking on, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's I was the, already a stalker. <laughs> yeah. Later I parlayed that natural thing. And now I was really, um, very, uh, very passionate about being an artist from when I was very, very young, being a poet. Um, when I was a very little kid, and I would, um, yeah, I, was, I took myself very seriously in terms of my religion and my art. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I was already 
on the on the path to art. And um, when I um, when I was you know a teenager, I am going into New York. It was um, as a you know a person who was aware of her destiny as an artist and who would you know like kind of romanticized adulthood and you know adulthood and poverty, both of which seemed to have been able to attain as my child self had wanted. <laughs> so proud. So uh, yeah. so okay, so uh did you go to college? Did you wind up going to school or did you just start making art? Like what happened to you? And I went to college. Yeah, I went to um I went to college in upstate New York and I um studied film. How? How first and, of all, how did you get to coming I mean, for somebody who had um you know, so little parental guidance or whatever as a kid, like how did you how did you wind up going to school? Did I know to study and everything? How did I know to like graduate from high school? Yeah, I mean, um, like just what, yeah, what made you question. what made you go there? Well, I did more parental guidance when my um, when my parents grew up a little more. My father remarried, and he kind of um, moved more into the like a little bit out of the water trade and into the um, you know. And then that's when I sort of had a suburban time in my life. Um, so how did I get there? It's really a good question. Um, but I did, you know, I did, I, you know, I did go to school <laughs> as a kid. Uh, I didn't, um, I didn't have a lot of pressure put on me. Like I didn't have to study or things like that. But I, um, and I didn't do great consequently in high school, but I somehow was able to, um, yeah, I don't know how I was able to go to college. I was published in some um, books when I was uh, in like tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade because I was part of a um, like a community poetry project um, in a town called Huntington, um, and uh, the woman who ran that were. I don't know if she ran it. She just worked for some organization that did this kind of thing. Um, was pretty ambitious, and we would put out books, and they were um, pretty good. I read it, um, the Poetry Project, when I was in high school, sort of because of her. Um, and, yeah, so I was pretty um, self-actualized. Um, I was not, of course. 16 years old and self-actualized. I'm not saying that, but I was doing a lot of work that was um, sort of outside of school that maybe made me look like a better candidate for school, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, for college. And, um, yeah, it was lucky. I was lucky because it was a good school that I got into and I wasn't really a great student. Um, but yeah, what I school, what school did you go to? Uh, it's called Binghamton. It's a state university, okay. Binghamton University, State University of New York at Binghamton. Sure, sure. Um, sure, sure. Old Binghamton. Old Binghamton. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And um, yeah, it is a, um, a really hard town to go to school in. It was... Um, very uh, depressing. It was really 
cold and um, dark. I think it has the highest rainfall of any um, town in New York, and it has the highest infant mortality rate. Uh, the, <laughs> the brilliant Steve Barty used to say, um, Binghamton, where uh, limping is a must and muttering to yourself is a must. <laughs> Robustation of the soul oh. was another good far too phrase. Yeah, so I um, just kind of, yeah, I graduated really fast and I left. <laughs> okay. So mm-hmm. then what? Like, and then, then you're out and you're making films? You're writing books? Like, then I was, yeah, then I was out and I was... Um, wandering around for a really long time and writing and making films, but not in any, um, I wasn't exactly, um, I was, I moved right away to, um, Ireland when I graduated because I had, um, I was able to get a working, like work visa, although I wasn't able to get any, um, work there. (laughs) And I, um, just sort of, Swapped around for a while, and then I um, came back to America, and I flopped around for a while, and I, um, yeah, <laughs> I turned out to be a very private person, I think. Um, I had, I um, traveled a lot, and I wrote a lot, and I worked some very unsavory jobs and I got like, into like a lot of like um, what were you stripping is like what what was what's unsavory jobs mean it just means that um that you know like there's some things are sweet and some things are savory and then some things are unsavory <laughs> and that like many of um the poor souls in Dante's Inferno fall in these spaces between other spaces um yeah, I think that, um, yeah, that I was um, trying to be a, um, find a path for myself that was um, not sustainable. I wanted to not be in um, the path of um, academia. I wanted to not be in the path of um you know, sort of art careerism, which, um, you know, it's not really possible. It's not really viable, but I wanted to be able to keep making work. Um, so, yeah, you're trying, you're trying, to, trying to subsidize your artwork without having to have kind of a nine-to-five, or is that right? Yeah, yeah, or, and, and, or anything identifiable. I, you know, like I... Um, I think that maybe, like a lot of people, trying to find another way to carve a life out. I think all of the um, models that, um, at least for, uh, yeah, I don't know, um, the, one of the main models for, you know, artists is, um, you know, academia, college. It's really... Russ, I mean, it's what I do now, um, but I think that um, oh, finding a way to sidestep that without, um, you know, there's a little bit of a uh, dream that people have, the way that um, you imagine 
the lottery, the way that people, you know, like some way to get to step outside of these few paths. Um, and and the only way that is really is that somehow miraculously somebody, you know, fills you with this huge amount of money and you just are able to make work. <laughs> but, you know, that rarely happens. So, um yeah, I think. Um, so when you say like, and I, you know, I can you sort of sidestep the unsavory. I don't want to make you talk about things you don't want to talk about. But like, is this like illegal? I'm I'm imagining like you're selling weed or you're. Uh, you, you, you imagine selling weed? That's. Um, I don't know. Why couldn't you have imagined like hijacking airplanes <laughs> and selling them to underground sea snails that are actually plotting to take over the, um, you know. Well, you can, you can tell us. You can clarify, clarify this, so we don't have to guess. Like, what were you doing? It's it's killing me that you. Oh, it was that. I was uh, I was um, stealing. I was hijacking airplanes and um, selling them to underground. So evasive. Giant snails. Yeah. All right. Man. Um. All right. I um. Yeah. I mean, I you know. I. Yeah. Um. Hmm. This is my <laughs> really biographical. Um, That's what the yeah. show is. That's what the show is. I guess I um, was looking at the. Um, I guess I should have listened more carefully. <laughs> I thought that that just happened naturally. Now I didn't realize. Like, oh no, you have to. Really, I mean, I guess. Uh, well, yeah. Okay. It's good. So, no, it's really good. I just I feel really bad that I'm so. Um, yeah, I feel um like why so private? Yeah, I'm curious. Do you know do you know why? I know, that's what I'm thinking. I do know why. Um I feel private because I am in the world of um you know, because I I feel put upon by um imagined external pressures. There's this expression, um, don't put another head on your head. I think it's a Chinese expression, I'm not sure. But just this I imagine that um you know, I won't get a job or something, you know, I'm just like, like thinking about the world of the, the square, square world and how horribly oppressive it is. So, you're and, being, so, which is another way of saying you're just being careful. Yeah, I'm not very good at it, am I? Because I'm being neither careful nor expulsive, <laughs> which is just horrible. I should go back down to the speech now. Yeah, we're just, I'm just, yeah, I feel like I'm in some sort of limbo. I'm just going to be forced to imagine for the rest of my life that you were either hijacking airplanes, uh, dancing, I'm just imagining some sort of nightclub dancing, or uh, selling weed. And I don't know. Those are the three. That's it. Those three. <laughs> not like black market refrigerator stuff. That's not your first. Off the back of a truck. I could see that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, my gosh. One day, I somebody um, tried to sell me meat. They knocked on my door, and they asked me, <laughs> first of all, I'm a vegetarian, but have you ever heard of such a thing? No. Like, the most, uh, the closest thing I can think of is, like, I've been driving around Los Angeles before, and I've had people pull up next to me and ask me to roll my window down, and they've, they've asked if I want them to fix, like, the dents in my car. Like, that's a thing. That people- ah, yes. Mm-hmm. I've had that. Yeah, That's good. No one's yeah. ever no one's ever tried to sell me like beef or something. <laughs> me, yeah, it was like steaks. <laughs> I was like, did you just walk in? Do you have a car or a truck or something? <laughs> so okay, so I'm, I'm supposed to ask you about Allen Ginsberg. Is that someone? Did you know Allen? No, I didn't. I think Adam must have uh, 
websites that fluff this up. No, but I think you must be talking about when I was uh, in high school, I did read at um, the St. Mark's Post that um, head of the, um, I can't remember what it's called, but they do it every year for um, New Year's, you know, a, a day-long poetry marathon. Ah, okay. And Allen Ginsberg read at that as well as I, my young sixteen-year-old self. So did you have? Any, did you have any? You, you know, did you have any interaction with him at all, or no? No, I don't think so. I didn't. I really talked to him, and I didn't really. Uh, I I like Allen Ginsberg, but I, for the most part, I um, and I was worse at that age. I don't. I didn't, and I still sort of don't really appreciate the beat writers that much or any of that group. Um, I feel like it's just really kind of misogynistic, and I just wanted to skip it. I mean, I feel like I could easily be, um, you know, the flaws in my logic could be, like, shown to me by the fact that I hardly ever read any of their books. I don't even really know. I just, like, Bob Dylan, or, you know, like, this whole, there's whole worlds of artwork that when you're a, um, teenage girl, every other, every teenage boy is in love with some other man, you know, man's artwork. Um, and I just really wanted to skip all of that work, particularly when I was a teenager. And so I, um, I didn't, um, wind, I didn't talk to him. I didn't, uh, freak out about it. I, um, yeah, I probably, um, yeah, he, so, wouldn't, he wouldn't have been. Uh, he wouldn't have been interested in you anyway. He's always interested in the boys. So, of know. course, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and, and then the other thing, and then you know, this is the other thing Adam said. He said he mentioned that your your grandfather, who you alluded to earlier, uh, was a musician, and he played mm-hmm. with. He actually played with Miles Davis. Yeah, um, it's so funny. So these are the selling points. Know something about famous men. Um, <laughs> I, don't know. Just, I think it might be. I mean, if you are, she might know something about some a great man artist. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, my grandmother, yeah, played on a lot of albums with Miles Davis and um, John Coltrane. What, what instrument? He plays the tuba and at uh, the tuba, and um, he played on Birth the Cool and Sketches of Spain, Tallest Trees, Africa Brass. Um, one of yeah. One of the people that um, uh, was part of that whole team. Did he perform live with them? Like, did you ever see them perform mm-hmm. together? I didn't see them perform together. Well, I did. I guess some. I went to Gil Evans Memorial Service, um, and a bunch of people played. You know, like um, Cecil Taylor and Jerry Mulligan, and um, yeah, uh, I. Um, but when I was a kid, did we see, I mean, probably a couple times, but I think at that point, you know, he wasn't playing with those guys as much. Then that scene was more like 50s and 60s. Right. And um, then he um, was also just much more interested in classical music. And he was, you know, really a working musician. So he worked, you know, he played on a lot of, like, music albums, or he played... Um, in the pit orchestra of the King and I he played on a lot of movie soundtracks, just studio work, you know, whatever work you get. Yeah, sure. And then he played with, yeah, with Symphony. So at that time when he was um, 
playing uh, on all those cool jazz albums was because um, he and Miles went to Juilliard together and, um, you know, we're friends and, you know, you like young people making music and just working as so many of us do with our, our friends, you know, working with friends and, um, yeah. Then, um, yeah. Okay. So let's get to night moves because this, you know, I, I should, I should preface this by saying that, uh, you know, this book is obviously avant-garde. It's a, it's a bit odd. It's internet based. I published a book last November, uh, that I co-authored with Justin Benton, which is somewhat similar. Like it, uh, the book that yeah. I wrote is called bored and it's a compilation of comments from, uh, my literary website, the nervous breakdown and your book uh, oh, what is Nervous Breakdown? How great. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. So, I love that. Yeah. So, okay. So, talk about Night Moves. The so board was, were the comments that people made on... On the comment at board. At the Nervous Breakdown? Uh, yeah. And so, so B-O-A-R-D. Yeah. So, B-O-A-R-D. And then, um, you know, we basically went through two years of the site, and we picked out all of what we thought were the best comments, and then we kind of piled them up into this big Microsoft Word document, and then we organized them according to theme, and then we... Oh, great. Yeah, so we... So do you have chapters? Say again? Like, are they their chapters, like, of this theme? Yeah. You know, angry people are... Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's chapters, and so there's some coherence to, like, thematic coherence to how the conversation unfolds, but it reads essentially like some sort of cacophony of voices in a conversation, and... Night moves, like, why don't you describe night moves, like, both in its origin and also in terms of, like, what it is so that listeners can get a sense? Because I think there's there's a strong line of similarity between the two books. Uh, yeah. It's really similar, except that um, it's not reorganized in any way. It's just taking it. And the only thing um, is that we took away the, um, you know, the names of the people that wrote them. Did you leave your the names? No, like, totally unattributed. Yeah. So, um... Yeah, and so it's just, um, and we didn't pick better or worse comments, just to see everyone. But I made a um, video uh, a couple of years ago called Tatum's Ghost, in which um, it's a re-edited um, episode of um, Unsolved Mysteries or Ghost, you know, like one of those TV shows, Ghosts or Unsolved Mysteries, I can't remember right now. And then I went through the YouTube comments, and I did pick and choose, and I even wrote a bunch of fake ones. And um, the YouTube comments scroll over the Tatum's Ghost, sort of maybe more, a little more similar to board, like working with that material but then crafting it a little bit, the way that you put it into themes or chapters. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, so like these are the materials, how can I organize them, you know, like compositionally making choices. So with Nightwaves, um I wasn't allowed to make any choices or extract any, any comments. It had to be exactly what it was. So there's a YouTube comments. They're all the YouTube comments um, for the Bob Seger song, Night Moves, um, for one posting of that on, on YouTube. So and how many comments were there? There's like, you know, hundreds, right? Yeah, there's hundreds. That's a good question, and I don't exactly know the answer <laughs> and then what about you what about usage like were you allowed to are you allowed to just grab people's comments off of uh like youtube uh, like a third-party site like that did you have any issues like that when you were deciding to publish the book um no i didn't think about it and i think that adam so adam robinson a publishing genius is the 
publisher and he I I remember asking him, you know, will that be a problem? And he came to think there wouldn't be any problem and if there would be a problem it would only be you know, it would be something that would, you know, a probably, you know, be a flash in the pan of frenzy. And if anything, if nothing else would probably be good for the book in terms of press or sure, something. Sure, sure, sure. But and I feel so, like, yeah. And why night moves? Who's going to know? I mean, like, <laughs> not so many people are going to be, like, reading it. <laughs> They're going to get upset, up in arms. I guess you didn't have to think about that because it was on your website. Yeah, I mean, you know, we went through, we had, we had some conversations about it, but we were very careful to, like, you know, A, we didn't attribute, so we're not, like, outing anybody's mm-hmm. personal business attached to their name. And mm-hmm. then we, we did a little bit of tweaking in terms of, like, specific proper names and stuff like that just to sort mm-hmm. of pr- try to protect the innocent. But um, uh-huh. in terms of, like, no, the, like creative decision-making process, like, why Night Moves? Why that song? Why Bob Seger? Why that YouTube video? And, like, what uh-huh. what was it about you that drove you to want to, like, assemble and publish these comments? Right. And so it's funny that I should be searched clearly in regards to um, biography <laughs> or biographical information and also in that we spent a while talking about the um, spirituality study because in a way they're related. Um, I, you know, if one one answer is that it's pretty random. I don't watch a ton of things on YouTube. I don't... Um, I, you know, I don't have very great internet, and I, um, yeah, I, it's not like, I've never put a YouTube comment up, I've never posted a video on YouTube, it's, you know, I'm not like that involved with it, I think I happened to have seen this and started reading the YouTube comments, and maybe like you, or probably hundreds and hundreds of other people, was really, really blown away and moved by you know, moved and also shocked and repulsed by the stream of comments. And I think it was a little bit chance that it should be that song. I was driving and I heard that song and I was just thinking about it like, oh, Bob Seger, what's his deal? Because I don't have any tape player or CD player in my car. I'm like subjected to um, classic rock or NPR or new country. And I sort of you know, scroll through those three and, you know, ultimately feel resolute in my decision to linger one place or, um, you know, frustrated with the offerings. So um, I think just beginning, I just kind of fell into reading them and it seems so perfect that it should be about this song because the song is, um, do you know the song? Does oh, everybody know the song? Of course, yeah, of course. Yeah, everybody knows it. Um, the song is so, well, it's just so well-known. You know, it's probably one of the, like, the hundred most popular songs in America, which is frightening in a way. Um, and I have mixed feelings about the song. In some ways, I think it's nice. And in another way, I don't, it's not, a, you know, it's not like what we should send up to Mars to communicate with the aliens. But, you know, it's not like our greatest human accomplishment. You know, like, we made this. So it's pretty, you know, uh, it's a little bit banal, you know. It doesn't really, musically, it's not like a divine creation. 
But, but it, to um, me, it, it does it evokes nostalgia, and I guess it's maybe dependent upon when you were born and when you grew up. But like Bob Seger and the song are a little bit before my time, and it still evokes nostalgia for me. You know, right? That's what I, yeah, absolutely. I think the song. The, what's funny about the song is it's like it's a song about nostalgia, and he couldn't have been very old when he wrote it, and he's writing it as if he's an older person feeling nostalgic about his first experiences with sex. But he's probably only, like, in his 30s when he writes it. I mean, yeah. I should probably check that out. No, but, you know, <laughs> I, 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 to me, like, it makes it makes kind of perfect sense because I feel like I've been nostalgic for my youth. Like, I, I feel like I was nostalgic for the, the, the fading or the loss of my youth even when I was, like, in my youth. Like, I remember being, like, 21 and being like, oh, it's all going so fast. You know, like, I've always had... <laughs> Yeah. I've always had like a, yeah. a, a bit of that like sort of melancholy. Like I've always had like kind of a, I don't know, I've been very sensitive to the passing of time and I can see how someone could feel nostalgic for be you know, for when they were 16, when they're 20. You know what I'm saying? Like I can, yeah. I can totally yeah. get that. Well, I think we have this fetishization of nostalgia. I mean, certainly we have a fetishization of youth in this culture. I don't know about others, but without a doubt, like, that sex is resigned to youth is kind of nutty. Um, and, you know, like the media deserves really, really reinforces that. Yeah, we're not needing to have sex when we're young for procreation because nobody, <laughs> like we don't need to be more human. So it's not like a biological imperative that we um, continue to have sex at only, only in our youth. But um, I think that, uh, the phrase autumn closing in is it's just like a little bit beyond just early nostalgia. It's sort of like, it's like taunting, um, taunting the end. Autumn is not closing in, even if you are, um, you know, 30 or 40 or 50. Um, I think it's kind of co-opting both a young person's, um, space as well as an old person's space. It's like a little bit of a greedy song. <laughs> Autumn closing in, maybe that's a phrase for somebody that's in their 70s, like really older people get to own that feeling of impending death. I mean, it's kind of one of the cool things that we have to look forward to. You know, like actually, philosophically, we're going to be engaged in that, you know, in that pondering in a very, very real way later, right? It's something that we we know is coming. And it's like Bob Seger in his 30s writes this song that's all about young, young sex and yet sort of waxing kind of delirious in the um, in waiting for the fear of death. Does that make sense? No, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's sort of comedic. <laughs> I mean, it's funny to me. Like, it, you know, just when, yeah. It, there's something really like inherently funny about like a relatively young or even an actually young person, like speaking in these, you know, sort of grave, you know, terms about yeah, about, exactly about death and the end, and you know. But I, I feel yeah. like, I feel like in our moment, there's something melodramatic about right. it. And I certainly was guilty of it, you know, on more than a few occasions in my. Oh, I'm still guilty about it. Yeah, of it. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Do you think that Bob Seger has read this book? I mean, do you have any idea? Did you, did, you think about send, it, did you think about sending it to him or his record label or his agent or something? It just 
just came out, so I don't think he's read it yet. But I wonder if he's read the YouTube comments because he could just, you know, <laughs> could just do that. Uh, should I send it? I um, I think I probably should because it would be so nice. I mean, if somebody made a piece of artwork based on a piece of artwork that I had made, I would love to see it. You know, I just think it's such a beautiful gesture. So I'll I'll try to send it to him. <laughs> I heard he's sort of um. Like a right wing, uh, I don't know. I guess I shouldn't. I shouldn't uh, disparage his good name. I really don't know anything about the man. I just thought the song feels like an everyman kind of song, and people are, you know, really involved in those notions of sex and death, and everybody knows it, whether they like it or dislike it, or you know, relegated to some kind of some weird spot in their brain. I mean, actually, that song and thinking about Indiana. In the Midwest, I feel like that kind of music is Midwestern. Oh yeah, no Bob Seger, J- John Bob Seger, John Cougar Mellencamp. Uh, I, yeah. I, grew, I grew up on that and stuff. This, 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 yeah, yeah, and trucks, or yeah, like there's some bar in Indiana waiting to serve you a beer, and this song is on the jukebox. Oh yeah, no, I mean, uh, like, they, I, yeah. like I have distinct memories of it. Uh, I mean, I remember getting Bob Seger, Bob Seger and Silver Bullet Band, like their greatest hit CD when I was a kid. You know, like, oh, you got it. Oh, oh yeah. wow. Oh, for sure. I know. Yeah, everything. and you're like, oh yeah. <laughs> I had it. Yeah. Did you listen to it um, on headphones? Uh, you know, it was more like on my boombox, and then in my car, I would, make, I would make tapes, and you know, but I was super into Bob Seger for a while. Like you're, cool. like, this is the thing about Indiana. Like we would go to John Cougar Mellencamp concerts. We would go, I went to see Bad Company in concert. You know, like oh, I, how pretty! Yeah, I saw David Lee Roth. Wow. I saw David Lee Roth perform solo. Oh, but I actually truly love David Lee Roth. Yeah, no, I mean it's like <laughs> I don't really love Bad Company. I think that but, yeah. I don't either. You know, but you just you you wind up going to these shows because yeah, uh, yeah. it's it's a cultural thing. You know, they're in the t- they're in town and there's nothing else going on. So like it's like let's mm-hmm. go see, let's go see the show, but. Um, you know, yeah. it not only evokes, you know, it evokes a sense of nostalgia for time in your life, but I think it also evokes place. And there's something distinctly, I mean, I think he's from Michigan. You know, there's something very Michigan. And he's Michigan, yeah. Midwestern, mm-hmm. Midwestern about it. But, you know, it's an, it's an unusual literary endeavor. Uh, but yeah. it, I, think I think that, I think that, uh, you know, you, and you can tell me if you felt similarly, but, you know, when I'm on the internet and I'm looking at, comment boards in particular i just feel like there's like all this weird literature happening that is basically going to be lost to the depths of the internet unless it's rescued into book form like that was sort of how i felt it was like well this is some really mm-hmm. interesting this is some interesting stuff like we need to preserve this i feel like like an archeo- yeah. like an archaeologist or something almost yeah Absolutely, and that was a huge impulse for this although i'm not 100% sure that it will be lost that paper won't be lost as easily, you know, in a, like a large cultural way as as uh, the internet will be. But funny, I one of the things I was just going to say, like you going to bad company songs or you know or um, concerts, just sort of saying, oh, is this a thing to do? In a way, that kind of music and YouTube comments or all of these kind of posting these like um, you know like Grecian public forums that have now become opened up um, are are purely archaeological, are purely or anthropological. Like, what are the other humans doing? I mean, there's a way you can listen to classic rock 
you know, you know, maybe you're thinking about music. Sometimes I think about music when I'm listening to it. But more than that, I'm thinking about society and what are the messages that are being given? What are, you know, like, why is something popular? How has this shaped the way I feel about love or sex or death? And just like you going to those concerts, it's being part of the stew of humanity and our sociology, our sociological time and space, it feels like that impulse to write the YouTube comments or read them or you or I publish them, collect them and wrap them up with a ribbon and try to get our friends to read them and go like, whoa, man, check it out with us. It's all the same impulse, right? It's just like this, um, all right, let me be in the field of humanity. Let me play and be part of it. Let me receive it, you know, reading or listening or going to the concert or adding a um, YouTube comment. It's the, the same gesture and the same kind of impulse that I was sort of um, feeling during my um, spirituality study. I was, <laughs> gonna, I was just going to say, I was going to say, was Night Moves on the mixtape that you listened to when you were... <laughs> No, I think there may have been one Beatles song, but it's mostly um, classical. Yeah, that would be too much. Uh, <laughs> well, and then sudden... you get out of the thing and you're like a lot dumber than you used to be. <laughs> you, <laughs> what did you guys do to me? I'm kind of slow. And, yeah. Um, well, it's a fascinating book and it's, you know, it's funny and it's, uh, makes you feel weird. It's all the different things that the internet does. You know, it's kind of a nice reflection of that. And I'm a sucker for, um, you know, experimental books like this. Like I like this kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. So I enjoyed reading it and it was fun to talk to you. I'm sorry that I uh, asked you so many questions about your life. (laughs) I'm sorry I was so squirreled about it. I should have been more prepared than I know in the future that I'm allowed to lie. I yeah. forgot about that you option. Could've, you could have just made shit Why up. Why did I just lie? Yeah. I never, I because I'm, because I'm so religious. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can yeah. go to, you can go to confession after this is done. If you did lie, and you can, you can now apo- yeah. apologize to God. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 I thank you, uh, for taking the time. It's been fun talking with you. I wish you the best of luck with the book. And with all of your future films and art projects and your teaching and everything that you have going on. Thank you so much for um, wondering about the book and talking to me. All right, you guys, that's it. That's Stephanie Barber. You can find her online at stephaniebarber.com. Her book is called Night Moves, and it is available now from Publishing Genius Press. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, thanks to Bob Seger, who you hear now. Thanks to uh, the Silver Bullet Band. Oh, yeah. I don't know how to talk over music like this. Anyway, uh, don't forget to get the app, the official Other People app. It's free. It's available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It's free, and it is the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can organize your favorite episodes. Uh, Once you have the app, you can download episodes to listen to offline, and you can access uh, premium bonus content and the full archives. Okay? So go do that. Uh, Me, what am I going to do? I'm going to go get my daughter from school. My, uh, my wife is out of town. 
I'm a, a single dad this weekend. I'm flying solo. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. I have to pick out outfits. I have to do ponytails. I have to uh, do the little rubber bands. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have to entertain. I have to play with dolls. Try to imagine me playing with dolls. Uh, please remember that Sherlock Holmes was addicted to cocaine and that Charles Ives gave away the cash that came with his Pulitzer Prize. That is it for now. We have reached the end. Did you listen to the full thing? Did you have the full experience? Did you really sit through the full doubleheader? Regardless of how you did it, thank you for being here. I'll be back in just a couple of days uh, on Wednesday with another episode. Uh, Got a good one coming up, so get ready for that, okay? Uh, Thank you. I'm late. I have to go. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.